just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. How well does expert insight from 10 years ago hold up? I'll ask Derek Carty about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 29th. It's show number 16 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X Projection Systems discussing revisiting some of his research findings from 10 years ago. The power outage in Major League Baseball so far this season, the future of research in baseball and fantasy baseball, and of course his boons and banes for 2022. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy has coverage of the National League and the American League this week. In the National League, he'll be looking at Ronald Acuna, Eddie Rosario, Jacob deGrom, and a short but fond farewell to Oliver Perez. And in the American League, Ray will discuss Adalberto Mondesi, Eloy Jimenez, John Means, and more American League news. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the frequent flyer. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Toronto second baseman Samad Taylor. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about checking out those no-doubter home run leaderboards. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X Projection System. Derek Carty, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. No, it's always so much fun to talk to you that I'm really glad that we get the opportunity. Uh, before we start, uh, where does this podcast find you? I'm in New Jersey. <laughs> are you At in home the, in my office. <laughs> are you in the uh, New York end of New Jersey or the Philadelphia end? Kind of in between. Uh, kind of in the middle along the shore. Oh, nice. I think I, I think I talked to you about this in person once, but uh, is that like where that crazy TV show was filmed? The, the Jersey yeah, Shore. Yeah, not not too far from here. It's not a, it's not the best representation of the area. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that was uh, that was not too far from here. <laughs> Be like living next door to the Kardashians and everybody saying, "So, what's your house like?" A <laughs> lot more normal, actually. Uh, so, how many uh, fantasy drafts are you playing this year? Uh, I'm in four. Um, I don't usually do a, you know, I used to be in a lot of season long leagues, but now between, you know, daily fantasy and sports betting and just everything, you know, I do kind of on the back end with projections and everything. I try to kind of keep, uh, keep my leagues to a minimum. You know, I have a home league. I play in tout wars. I play in labor and I play in, uh, uh, GDD, which is kind of like a, like a New York, New Jersey based league with a bunch of, you know, like 
fan of you know industry type guys Derek Van Riper and Ian Khan and uh I don't know some other guys like that are in the league so uh those are my four I suspected that you're probably way down on on overall count from when you were in your heyday a few years ago you were quite successful in the experts leagues yeah no I've uh I've still been doing good. You know, I won labor the last two years. I'm, you know, cross my fingers. I'm sitting in first right now. So uh, three in a row would be pretty awesome. <laughs> Which labor league are you in? Uh, NL only. Oh, no kidding. What's your secret for uh, for only leagues? I think the biggest secret is uh, is don't be afraid of boring guys or guys on bad teams. Um, you know, the one of the most important things is just not having dead spots. The leagues are so deep that if you can just roster, you know, a, a whole team of full-time hitters, you're at such an advantage over people that are going to have, you know, just be taking zeros at a couple spots. So, you know, even if you're not picking the sexiest guys, uh, you know, you don't need to to spend, you know, on, on two $40 hitters and, and wind up having a couple of scrubs, like just, uh, you know, go for balance and and try not to have any dead spots. You're not the first very successful fantasy player who has said the secret to winning is old, boring guys and and guys on bad teams because they're not attractive in the in the moment at drafts and auctions. But as long as they're delivering and the price is usually much better for guys who are like last year's heroes and and old boring veterans as you said i think that that really works how did you get involved in fantasy baseball in the first place Derek? uh i mean i was always into sports growing up you know i was i was big into you know basketball big into baseball um you know played a little bit in high school and uh you know i'd play in you know just like a regular home fantasy baseball league uh with my friends so that was kind of how you know how i was first introduced to it and then as I got a little bit older, you know, I read Moneyball, um, you know, I started to learn that there was like an actual like analytical way to approach it. Uh, that's really when things kind of took off for me. Were you an analytical kid as by nature, like a math kid, science kid? Yeah, I was, you know, I was straight A's on a roll, you know, the, the whole deal, you know, super into math and science and, and everything. So it was, it was a pretty easy fit between, you know, liking sports and, and liking math. That's what I found too. And I wasn't really that good at math in, I was good at math in high school, not so much in college, but, uh, I found that, uh, it's a really good way to apply those skills. And I've had the occasion to teach, uh, high school age kids or first year college kids, some very rudimentary stats classes. And I always, they're mostly boys cause it's a, a technical school, carpentry and that kind of stuff. And uh, I almost always used hockey stats to make the points I was trying to make. And it was certainly much more engaging for them than talking about it in the abstract. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, stats give us a whole new understanding of these games. How did you go from enjoying the use of stats to be successful playing fantasy baseball to making your own projections rather than what most of us do, which is to rely on somebody else for doing that work? (laughs) yeah i'm i'm weird i always kind of i don't know i'm ambitious i like to build my own things i like to play with stuff and uh you know i i started out early on in the analytical community kind of working with people who had experience building projections who you know had different uh you know methods for for predicting performance and eventually i was kind of like well you know i've learned so much here like why don't i try to build my own and and see 
see what happens. You know, it started as a, as like my college thesis paper essentially was building, building the bat. And, uh, you know, after, you know, after college, you know, I had this, this system on my hands that was pretty good. And, and so, yeah, it just kind of took off from there, especially once, once DFS became a thing, like it was very easy to, you know, configure the projections to work for that. You know, at the time, nobody was doing projections for that. And uh, I thought there was, you know, a pretty big opportunity to be had. Well, a little later on, we'll talk about the difficulties of, of building projection systems for single day events and those kinds of things, because I know there are challenges there. Do you build projections for any other sports? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do football also. So I have the bat for football and I have the blitz or the bat for baseball and I have the blitz for football. This is impinging on something that we're going to talk about later, but uh, I wasn't planning on talking about football, but I'm curious about the challenges where you have uh, much fewer individual discrete events to use to base projections on. How do you meet that challenge instead of having, you know, 162 games, you've got what, 17 now. So that's barely a 10th of the amount of games. The amount of plays is relatively truncated compared to major league baseball. If you consider each pitch to be an event and there's a lot of interplay on the field going on. We, of course, look for the the gain made by the running back, but there's a lot of line play and uh, misdirection and and those kinds of things that impact the ability of running back to do well. How do you manage all those challenges? It seems like quite a challenge intellectually. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what appealed to me, you know, in the first place, building the bat and then building another system because uh, I like an intellectual challenge. You know, there are a lot of things that are the same projecting baseball and football, you know, the, the sample size issue that you kind of mentioned is really not an issue at all. Um, we, we measure in baseball or in football or in anything, you know, how long something takes to stabilize. And so just because football has, you know, what looks like a smaller sample size doesn't mean that it actually is Uh, a great example is in, in baseball, you know, we can say that sample sizes aren't, aren't, aren't finite. You know, a sample size of two is not always a small sample size. So if we were to talk about, you know, a pitcher's batting average on balls in play, we know this is very noisy. A sample size of two batting, you know, two balls in play is incredibly, incredibly small for that. But if we were to look at a pitcher's fastball velocity, two pitches, you know, guy throws 99 and a guy throws 98.6. Well, guess what? That's really not that small of a sample size. There's a, there's, almost no chance that after the guy has thrown those two pitches that his next fastball is going to be 85 miles an hour. Like it's going to be high nineties again. So it all depends on what you're looking at and everything has its own inherent level of stability. And so in baseball, we measure it for every statistic and you can do the exact same thing in football. And what you find is that football statistics in general um, are a little bit, uh, take a little bit longer to stabilize than baseball stats do but not by that much for, for a lot of them. So uh, it's really not that much of an issue, uh, and it's something that we can quantify regardless. And so for something like running back yards per carry or um, receiver yards per reception, those kinds of things, do you just make the assumption that the team context is going to stay relatively stable, and based on that you're able to, to um, pr- 
project how many catches a, a guy's going to have for how many yards down the road because quarterbacks the same, lines the same, other receivers are the same, game plan is pretty much the same. Those kind of uh, assumptions do they do they underlie what you're doing there? Yeah. So uh, ideally, I think any good projection system is going to adjust for context in baseball. You know, the bat projections get adjusted for the ballpark and the opposing hitter or pitcher and the defense and the umpire and the weather and catcher pitch framing and like whatever else. Uh, In football, you want to do the same thing. You want to adjust for the quality of the offensive line. You want to adjust for the quality of the opposing defense. You want to adjust for weather. You want to adjust for, you know, whatever. And and that is a little bit more challenging in football than it is in baseball. Like baseball um, has a uh, a lot less interaction between players. You know, pitcher throws the ball, hitter hits the ball, fielder fields the ball, and that's the end of the play. Whereas in football, you know, you're you have five men on the offensive line. You have the quarterback, the the running back. You have the wide receivers. Yeah, there's a lot more going on, a lot more interaction between players, and that can be trickier to to deal with. Um, you know, if if the quarterback throws the ball and the wide receiver catches it, well. Who's responsible for that? Is it the quarterback? Is it the wide receiver? Um, it's a combination of the two, but which who's responsible to what degree? And that that's one of the biggest challenges, but it is something that uh, uh, that the Blitz is, uh, I think, does a, a pretty good job of doing, uh, of accounting for. I was thinking while you were saying that, yeah, the, uh, the defensive back, defensive scheme, all of these kind of things that would uh, mitigate for or against the success of a passing play. That's really interesting. Let me close by asking you this. If you looked at a baseball projection that you or somebody else built and found it by whatever measure you choose to do was 85% accurate, what would be the equivalent level of accuracy you'd be satisfied with in a football projection? I think it really depends on how you're defining accuracy. Um, I'm not even sure exactly what 85% accurate would mean. Um, you know, like I said, football statistics do tend to take a little bit longer to stabilize. There are some extra challenges to account for with football. So I guess maybe in like an absolute sense, maybe you'd say, you know, football projections are, I don't know, you can achieve 90% of the accuracy you can achieve with baseball projections or something like that. But really these are, they're not con. They're not concrete constructs here where, where we can really you know put an exact number on these things. Your website says you're a graduate of Major League Baseball's scouting program, and I'm quoting here, a firm believer in the importance of combining stats and scouting. I have to admit that took me a little bit by surprise because you're so stats-oriented whenever uh, you speak at seminars and so forth. I think this is really interesting. How do you apply scouting knowledge to the statistical basis of the projections that you make? Yeah, so the way I kind of look at it is that a lot of times the stats explain uh, what happened, and scouting can help you understand why it happened. And if you understand why it happened, you can have a higher higher confidence uh, that what happened is is actually going to continue happening, that it's legitimate. Um, and scouting is is by nature, you know, softer. You know, it, it's not always quantifiable. Although we're seeing more and more as the years progress. Um, you know. It's been quite a few years since I've been to scout school. And since then, a lot of the things that we learned, uh, you know, to kind of identify with our eyes uh, has been, you know, starting to be quantified, you know, through StatCast and, you know, the different tracking systems that, that we have in place. 
you know, we're tracking, uh, you know, the exact flight path of, of every pitch that's thrown of every ball that is hit. Um, eventually I think we're probably going to, I mean, in the, the private sector, you know, there are, um, you know, tracking systems that track, you know, batting stances and then pitcher, pitcher mechanics and stuff like that. And, uh, eventually we'll get those in the public sphere too. So, um, you know, it really is, you know, for, for years, it was kind of like this battle between like stats and scouting, and it doesn't really need to be that way, especially once we get to the point that we can quantify this scouting stuff. Then if you can put a number on it, you can, you know, really analyze it. But even before you can do that, you know, you can take major, I'm sure every single major league team has done it. You can take your scouting reports, your soft scouting reports, um, and, you know, having a big sample of them, you can analyze their predictive value and you can roll that right into your, your actual, you know, quantitative projection. So, um, they're really not as, as at odds as, uh, as they've made out, as they've been made out to be over the years. I thought that was interesting when I was thinking a little while back about, um, bat speed. And I understand that in behind the scenes, Major League Baseball teams do have access to bat speed data. We don't yet have it in the public sphere. Uh, I presume that we'll get it sooner or later. But we did have scouts and we did have analysts who just go and watch these guys play and say, this guy's got tremendous bat speed. And after a while, if that scout is consistently right about the his assessment of uh bad speed, then you can start to buy it. And then later on, I presume that when we do get the information or when other people have it, they look at it and go, yes, he does have way above average bad speed, but it is something that can be observed without being quantified, pending it being quantified. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, the, the end goal is to quantify everything. Um, certain things probably we'll never get there with, but a lot of things we will. Um, but in the meantime, you know, there are lots of things that even if they're not perfectly quantified, things that scouts can observe uh, that have real value in analyzing players. Um, you know, it's just a matter of uh, of being able to trust that the scout is doing a good job. And uh, I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of fantasy players and then people on Twitter that I interact with, they really fancy themselves scouts because they're sitting at home watching TV. And I think that is a very different thing than uh than what scouts are actually doing you know oh i i watched uh you know luis severino get blown up in the in the the world series or whatever and so he's terrible i i can i can see it with my eyes i can see how terrible luis severino is and like that's a very different thing than a scout who's like looking and saying okay well this is like his arm angle and his mechanics and like his curveball like you know has this type of movement on it and like it, it's a very different thing so uh you know, scouting is great, uh, but it has to be good scouting. <laughs> I, I see a lot of online scouting reports that are, they trumpet the fact that the scout the, or the person writing the uh, article was in the stands at the game watching live. And, and I think that's very appealing. But on the other hand, what always strikes me in the back of my mind is you're seeing this guy basically for one game. And speaking of small samples, it seems like anything can happen in one game. You could see a guy who's actually a banjo hitter, you know, really drive a ball just by accident or, you know, one of the three times he's going to do it in the year, or you might have a pitcher who's nominally not that great, 
but he has a real good night, snapping the curveball off or getting a little bit of extra oomph on the fastball. How many times do you think a scout needs to see with his or her own eyes the player in action before you can start to say, all right, now I'm interested in what this person has to say? Well, I mean, a lot of scouts, they only get the one opportunity and you do the best you can with it. Um, in an ideal world, the scout is not being biased by what the actual results are. They're focusing on the process so that even if a pitcher gets shelled that day, you're still watching his mechanics. You're still watching his actual pitches and his movement. And, and you're focusing on the process as opposed to uh, the results. And some days the process is going to be different than the process another day. The pitcher's mechanics are off today. You know, he, his fastball's a couple ticks slower than it than it was in his last start or than it will be in his next start. And there's really nothing you can do about that. Um, so you really are just doing the best you can. And ideally, I mean, the same as anything else, the bigger the sample size, the better. I also often wondered when scouts go out, obviously they don't go out having never read a single word about this player, having never seen film, having never seen video. I mean, they have a bit of a background and are kind of, uh, I wonder if this is the case, that they're kind of looking to confirm or disqualify the things they think they know about the pitcher based on the data they've read, the report, previous reports they've read, and so forth, rather than just going into it blind and basing everything on just that one appearance. It seems ludicrous to do, uh, to do a, a, a scouting visit on a player without literally having zero exposure to him beforehand. Yeah, that's one of the issues with scouting is that, uh, you know, there are, there are biases that kind of have to be overcome and that, you know, sometimes aren't going to be. Ideally, a scout should never be looking at the guy's numbers or statistics or anything, you know, ahead of time. But, you know, there's going to be reputations. You know, if you're looking at one of the top prospects in baseball, you're going to know that he's one of the top prospects in baseball. If you're being sent to a game to look at a guy specifically, well, it's probably because there's something to look at there. So, yeah, that, that's definitely one of the challenges that scouts have to have to contend with. It's very interesting, and in a certain way, everybody who plays fantasy baseball is a player scout in a in a sense because we are all looking at what we can look at to try to figure out what's going to happen next. And, of course, we rely on the bad and other projection systems to help. But it, even looking at it on TV, I think, helps us figure out whether we like a player or whether we don't, I just don't know whether it does that very well. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X. And Derek, as you know, game-wide this year, batting average is down a little bit, run scoring is down a little bit more, but home runs are down more than 20% this year. What do you think is going on with these vanishing home runs? We're all just speculating right now. What we can say is that we've definitely reached a point of stabilization and something very real is happening here. And for the time being, we have to assume that this is the run environment that we're playing in. Uh, the most likely scenario or the most likely kind of uh, reason for it is, is that the balls, the balls are different. Um, you know, the, we knew last year they were playing with two different balls. You know, we kind of, you know, figured out that, that one of them was, more juiced. One of them was, was deader. And it seems like we're playing with those deader balls this year. Uh, whether that accounts for the whole effect or not, I'm not sure. There are definitely, um, other possibilities, you know, the shorter spring training obviously throws kind of a monkey wrench into the whole thing. These new humidors, um, there's been some evidence 
that they might be driving this a little bit, but not everything really checks out with that explanation. I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around that one. Um, but it seems like that could certainly have something to do with it. And if that has something to do with it, there is the possibility that this gets reversed a little bit as we get into the the warmer, more humid months. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to watch. We don't have a good explanation right now. We kind of just have have guesses. I think it's pretty obviously got to be the ball. It's the most obvious thing. And uh, Occam's Razor says the simplest explanation is usually the right explanation. It's interesting that you talk about the humidors. There was an article I read the other day, and I don't remember where. I believe it might have been at Baseball Prospectus. But they were talking about the humidors and how the humidors are managed in Major League Baseball. And one of the things that came away with me that really stuck was they set the humidors the same in all the parks, but I think Colorado because of the altitude situation, but all of the other ones are set the same. The humidity level in the humidor, in the humidor is the same. The temperatures are the same and so forth. And these scientists looked at it and said, this doesn't make sense. You're using a humidor in places where it's already humid. You're using the same humidor settings in a place that's much drier and should actually be more humid. There's all of these things going on. And the balls themselves react differently to the the humidor actions inside. If the seams are slightly wider, then the water gets in more easily. If they're tighter, it doesn't. All of these things are going on, which uh, nobody is really accounting for. But it seems in the aggregate that the humidors are causing the balls to not travel as far or possibly the manufacture of the balls themselves, which was a bit of a sticking point last year. Yeah, like I said, um, there's a there's a possibility that these are, um, uh, you know, having an impact. I think that article was the was was Eno's at at The Athletic, probably, um, which is a great article. It was. Um, Yeah, you're right. But, uh, but yeah, there's just like a couple things that, uh, again, I, I don't want to talk about too much cause I really don't know. Um, but there are just a couple things that don't make sense to me that I'm still trying to figure out. I was going to ask, it seems like the kind of a shift that would give heartburn to a guy whose business is trying to project these things and having a, a fundamental change like this must really be difficult to manage. How are you managing this significant, significant change in the performance levels with regard to home runs? So if it were um, just a league-wide thing where just the ball is different, uh, that's easy enough to account for in a projection. The bat has been doing that for years because the ball has been different every single year. You know, it, uh, it, it knows how, how quickly it takes, um, you know, the league-wide levels to stabilize and it accounts for it. You know, every day it feeds in new data and based on the stabilization levels, the same as it would do for a player. Um, it estimates what the, you know, the most likely league level actually is. And it, it scales everybody to that level, essentially, based on, based on, you know, their own unique talents and whatnot. Um, so if it's just a league-wide thing where just the ball is different and everybody's using the same ball, super simple. If it is this humidor thing and some parks are being affected more than others, that's a problem. And that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. <laughs> My first thought when I saw this news was to be more interested in hitters whose home runs tend to be no-doubters versus the guys who hit more wall scrapers. This came up a few years ago when the big beneficiary of the lively ball, the happy fun ball, 
was guys like uh, Justin Smoke, who were hitting a lot of sort of warning track fly balls three feet short of the fence. And the four or five, eight feet that they were picking up because of the ball was pushing a lot more balls over the fence. So they had a disproportionate increase in home runs relative to a guy like Giancarlo Stanton, for whom most of his home runs were clearly out of wherever they were hit. You know, they're 450 feet and not 395 and so the extra 10 feet doesn't really matter for, for Stanton in the way that it does for a Justin Smoker, guys like that. How justifiable am I in thinking that there might be something we can take advantage of in looking for players who are going to lose home runs because of this ball versus players who stand to not suffer as much because anything they hit goes out of the park? Yeah, there's a, there's certainly something there. I don't think it's as much as some people might might think it is, but yeah, there, there's definitely going to be something there. The problem is, or one of the problems is uh, being certain about who these guys are. You know, a lot of times, you know, you'll see, you know, analysis where, uh, you know, in the off season, you know, one of the popular things is StatCast has this thing where you can see how many home runs a guy's, a guy would have hit in a different park. Um, so like, you know, they'll take, the home runs that he hit in, uh, you know, wherever, uh, I don't know. I can't even come up with an example, but they'll take what his, the home runs he hit in one park and they'll just like put them, layer them on top of another park. And they'll say, okay, well he hit 30 home runs in that park, but, uh, he only would have hit 20 home runs in this park. So we should expect his home runs to go down this year. And guys aren't always going to, hit balls to the exact same spots that they have hit them to in the past in general. Yeah. Big time power hitters are going to hit them further than, you know, your, you know, your, uh, your D Gordon types. Um, but in general, uh, we don't have as much confidence in where guys are going to hit balls as we think we do. Yeah, we shouldn't. Uh, that particular thing you were talking about at Baseball Savant, the StatCast metric, they do have a disclaimer in there that says this doesn't account for park dimensions. This doesn't account for, well, it's based on park dimensions, but it doesn't account for the actual park, makes no allowance for, for weather. atmospheric effects. It doesn't account for wall heights. Like there's right. a lot of things it doesn't account for, yeah. I'm also more interested in pitchers whose weakness in the past might have been allowing home runs because they suppress strand rates and we know they increase ERAs, at least in theory. But how justifiable and actionable might this reaction be? I have a pitcher that I didn't like coming into the year because he gave up too many home runs, maybe because of the ball and the whatever is causing the decline in home runs. The decline in home runs is real, and maybe that pitcher all of a sudden is going to be a, a lot better off than a guy who didn't have that many home runs in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is very actionable because, uh, I mean, pitcher fly ball rates are extremely stable. We understand why they happen. Uh, you know, we know who the fly ball pitchers are. And obviously, um, if you're allowing a lot of fly balls and it's very easy for those balls to, you know, fly over the fence, you're going to allow a lot of home runs. Um, so yeah, I think the extreme fly ball pitchers are assuming that this environment stays the whole year and we don't see it kind of reversed in the second half. Uh, you know, we would expect the fly ball pitchers to have a bigger relative advantage, um, you know, because of this. Are there any other ramifications of this whole power outage thing that fantasy managers ought to be considering? 
Not really. I, I mean, I'm sure there are. There, there's lots of different narratives you can spin here, lots of different ways you can consider it. Um, but the truth is there's so many unknowns that it's important not to overreact based on hunches. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping we get some more information in the coming weeks as to what is actually going on. Gosh, Derek, I could talk to you about this kind of stuff all day, but we have to take a little break here, do our National League and American League news with Ray Murphy coming up. But uh, if you can wait a couple of minutes, we'll come back and talk about uh, revisiting the past. Sounds good. Derek Carty is the creator and manager of the Bat and Bat X projection systems, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy with the National League and American League news next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In lineup outlooks, analyst Greg Jewett looks at players making moves within their batting orders, including Tommy Edmond and Anthony Rizzo. In the daily call-ups report, our Baseball HQ scouting team looks at all the latest call-ups, including catcher Sam Huff in Texas, third baseman Emmanuel Rivera in Kansas City, Ray and I talked about him, and Baltimore right-hander Kyle Bradish, and Ray and I talked about him too. Coming soon in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, analyst Doug Dennis looks at value tiers through April 26th, including some non-closers who've already earned $10 in rotisserie value. And those are just a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, we have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you're going to get some expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report, and leading off, it's our National League News. Harold Nichols is away on vacation, and so filling in, most capably, I'm sure, is our co-GM at BaseballHQ.com and columnist at the site, Ray Murphy, doing double duty today. Ray, how you going? I'm doing good. I got my vacation time in last week, so I'll tag out with Nick this week. Thanks to uh, Matt Beagle for filling in for me on last week's show. He did a good job. He did a really good job, as a matter of fact. Yeah, he did. And Nick will be out next week, so you may be do- doing double duty again. Although I'm going to contact Matt and see see if he's up. He, he had a good time, he told me, and maybe we could uh, get him back a, a little more frequently because that'd be great. He's a terrific guest on the show. Uh, let's start with the National League news, as I said. and uh, In Atlanta, some good news and some bad news, Ray. The good news, of course, is that first-rounder outfielder Ronald Acuna, who's been on the IL since last July, recovering from a torn ACL, was activated on Thursday, which was a week ahead of schedule or so. So anybody who drafted him in the first round is probably breathing something of a sigh of relief. 
We expect, of course, he's going to go right back into right field, presumably to the top of the Atlanta order. But ACL tears are tough injuries, especially for people who run for a living. Uh, What should we expect from Ronald Acuna on the stolen base side? Yeah, that's sort of a key question, and he gave us an early data point when he uh, went one for five with uh, two stolen bases in his first game back on Thursday. So uh, there's a indication that you know we've long said at hq uh you know ed dicaria came up with the uh you know sort of the mantra that stealing is about the 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 skill to steal and the will to steal and acuna is you know right off the bat demonstrating the will at least i sort of laughed uh you know you're talking about him being activated early i sort of laughed i guess it was last weekend when on his rehab start rehab games in the minors he started getting the uh the minor league videos of him doing things like making making mad dashes for home plate on, I think it was done with the back end of a double steal or something like that. And you could just imagine that Alex Antopoulos was like, well, if he's going to do that, he might as well do it in Atlanta, you know? <laughs> I always thought that uh, skill and will thing was uh, the player has the skill, but the manager has the will. And uh, I guess either he's got a complete green light or uh, or he's getting the green light from the dugout from Brian Snitker, so it looks like anybody who is worried about the stolen base side at least can take heart in this uh, two stolen base performance on game one. Do you think he can keep that up? Uh, it's it's a long season. There's a lot of wear and tear. We had him pegged, I think, for something like 30 bags this year before he, uh, before we knew what the playing time was. Do you th- standing by that 30-ish bag uh, projection? We're projecting him in more like 15 right now. Uh, for the balance of the season, which you know, he, uh, based on last night's pace, he might get there in a week. But uh, you know, I do, I do think uh, discretion is the better part of valor here. I'm sure he was amped up to be back last night, but you know, we're it's notable. I think, in addition to the uh, the stolen base projection, you know, to keep in mind from the playing time perspective that we're just projecting him for 85 percent of the playing time in that outfield right now, when normally he's a uh, you know, 95 to 100, 100-ish playing time guy. And the reason for that is, you know, we're worried about, you know, the occasional day off, the the inevitable, you know, I've, I just played five days in a row and, you know, it felt great. I stole two stolen bases my first game back. But, you know, now after five games in a row, with a couple of them on artificial turf, it's a little sore and they're going to shut me down for a couple of days. So, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint and initial returns are promising, but uh, I'm not going in to change our projections just based on last night's game. The flip side of that, of course, is the National League does have the DH now, so they could give him the uh, so-called half day off if they needed to get him out of the lineup as far as running around the outfield could uh, maybe take a little bit of the strain off. And as well, Acuna has been a premium stolen base guy. In his last four years in the big leagues, he's run in 14% of his opportunities. That's baseball references definition, which is a runner on first or second with the next base open, which I think is a pretty good definition of an opportunity. 14% of go is pretty good and a 79% success rate. We know from the metrics and from the math that they've done about wind shares added and so forth, that a 79% success rate means when he steals or when he, when he attempts to steal, he's actually helping the team. Yeah, that's right. He's, it's an asset. And, you know, I think that's a big reason why you know, you talk about Brian Snicker not giving him the red light, and you know he's he's earned the right to pick his spots because he's demonstrated the skill to do that. And you know he has been uh, from time to time a you know when he's been healthy and going good, 
you know, he's been an absolute maniac on the bases. I mean, I think back to, I guess it was his 2019, you know, first full season real breakout when he went just nuts in the second half with, uh, you know, 24 steals and just the second half of that season, a total of 37 on the year, but they were clustered, clustered in the second half. I mean, you're right. He's a premium stolen base asset when he's healthy. I, you know, the only question I think here is how much the knee allows him to do that for the rest of this year. And, you know, whether, you know, I, I think his owners are probably, uh, you know, I, I don't have much of a Cunha this year, but I got to think while the, while pe- people who ra- drafted him are happy he's back early and thrilled that he stole two bases, uh, you know, in the back of people's minds, you know, either his fantasy owners or the Braves, there's got to be a, a, a little note of, uh, okay, okay, you know, we got a hundred five more of these like you know let's uh we want you the most important thing is that you're in the lineup and you know running like a madman is a bonus but you know don't forget rule number one we need you in the lineup right the other thing that uh, struck me when i read that he had stolen the two bases and had come back early was i wondered how many of of acuna's fantasy managers didn't have him in their lineups this week because it was somewhat unexpected that he got called up when he did and they People might have thought, oh, you know, maybe it's this week, maybe it's not. I don't know. I'm doing it fairly well. I'll just leave him one more week. And so we're going to miss, you know, could miss six or seven stolen bases between now and the end of the weekend. And boy, wouldn't that be something. Uh, another problem with the Atlanta outfield, Doray, is they've put Eddie Rosario on the 10-day IL retroactive to Monday of this week. He's got a swollen right retina, which sounds terrible. And of course, his vision has been blurred as a result. He can't hit. Rosario is going to have a laser procedure to correct the issues, but he's going to miss eight to 12 weeks. And the semi-corresponding roster move was calling up a pitcher, right-hander William Woods. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this story for playing time today at Baseball HQ. What happens with the Atlanta lineup, especially in the outfield, with Rosario now gone till what looks like the all-star break at least? Yeah, that's really a blow for the Braves because they were, you know, the the, the return of Acuna obviously remains the headline and is you know overall you know great news for them. But rather than getting their outfield back to full strength, it's you know in terms of a one for one swap. I'm not putting Rosario on Acuna's level, but in terms of a one for one swap, it's uh, you know it's sort of a net zero in terms of team health, right? So that's not great. Uh, they they had been using Azuna, uh, Duval, and Rosario across the outfield. So Acuna drops into Rosario's spot and right. Duval probably has to keep masquerading in center. And and speaking of masquerading, you know, Azuna's really a DH more than he is an outfielder at this point anyway. So uh, the outfield defense is not great, and th- that may tempt Snitker to do some different things with the DH spot, uh, excuse me, with the outfield spots to try to get some some better defense out there. For now, Ray, I wonder if we should just expect journeyman Travis Demerit to keep playing a lot of outfield, but I was wondering about plate appearances for Guillermo Heredia. He was the primary center fielder last year for one reason and another. How are we assessing the playing time for those two guys based on the uh, likelihood that they're not going to see Eddie Rosario for quite a while? Yeah, the couple of opportunities available here, like I said, from the uh, you know from Acuna and Azuna moving the DH periodically, to free up some corner outfielders. And I'm sure Snitker would like some guys who can, you know, actually run after fly balls and catch them. Uh, and those guys both kind of fit the bill. Uh, it's, it is noticeable that they designated Alex Dickerson for assignment when Acuna got activated. So he's out of the picture, which is why it kind of leaves just, uh, just these two demerit and Heredia. And 
we're projecting them for uh, you know demerits at twenty percent playing time right now. Heredia is up in the fifties, which is you know pretty substantial. But that just reflects that you know really between Acuna, Duval, and Azuna, those are the DHs. So those guys are going to rotate through the DH, and really the third outfield spot you can think of as available because one of those three primary outfielders is going to DH us about every day. And, you know, based on pretty much a straight platoon, we've got her, we've got Heredia with 55% of the playing time demerit with 20. And then, you know, that buys that, that, that lasts us until Rosario comes back or something else changes. So edge to Heredia for now, but uh, you know, there are going to be opportunities for both of them. Some media reports said that uh, Duval has actually been fairly decent in center field, surprisingly, given his reputation. I saw somewhere that he had a gold glove recently, and I, I've like had to shake my head and look twice at it. But that's what it said. Uh, there was also some speculation that maybe Acuna moves into center field, but uh, I don't think that that makes sense given the extra. Uh, running burdens that center field implies. I think there, if you see Acuna in center field, it's going to be a pretty massive statement that they are fully confident in his knee. I don't think they're going to take any chances with that. If there's any lingering doubts, I think it'll be a while before they do that. But I, I think you, I think that's kind of the marker I would use for, okay, that's a clean bill of health, but yeah, I mean, they faked it with Duvall in center field for the entire postseason last year. And that obviously worked out. So I don't think anybody would tell you it's optimal, but I think they can, uh, they think they can survive like that for a while longer. Some positive news for the Mets. Uh, right-hander Jacob deGrom had a couple of scans, one MRI, one CT scan, that showed what they called considerable healing of that stress reaction in his shoulder blade. What does this news mean for the timetable to see uh, Jacob deGrom back on the mound? I don't think we know yet. I, you know, the, the spin from the Mets media has been, I would say, cautious optimism about this, but... Uh, I can only assume that the Mets media is getting fed that info from the front office and that the Mets media is not actually reading the MRIs themselves, right? <laughs> but so, you know, they didn't, what they did not say coming out of this, you know, cause this fairly positive scan was that DeGrom's going to start throwing. They said it's going to be a little while longer before that happens. So he's going to keep, I guess, doing whatever exercises he's doing now. Um, when we look at what, um, our injury columnist, uh, Big Hurt, uh, in the Big Hurt space, Matt Cederholm, said the good news is that DeGrom's on track, maybe even a little bit ahead of where he was projected to be in his recovery right now. But that timeline that got set out as you know something like late June hasn't changed anything. So we can't really start the clock on an expected return date until he picks up a baseball, which we still don't have a timetable for. So. This is a lot of, because it's DeGrom, it's been a lot of media attention this week, but I'm not sure we actually learned anything that changes, that gives us any information or changes any perceptions we had. I think that's well put. Uh, if if it did provide anything, it may have provided some reassurance that at least things aren't getting worse and that we, uh, you know, they didn't come in and say, oh, the scans were cloudy or the scans were showing uh, that it wasn't going as well as we had hoped and now he's going to be pushed back even further than what we thought. So, I guess that the best you can say is uh, if they maintained the June deadline or the June target date, that's a bit of good news in that it isn't bad news. Yeah, I think that's right. It's the, it, it's the negative case, right? It was a, it was an opportunity for a checkup and they didn't discover anything that's a setback. I think that's a, that's about as much as you can say about it. 
Uh, Matt Cedarholm reported in the Big Hurt that DeGrom's going to have some more scans in about three weeks' time, and uh, then they should be able to really narrow down the timeline with considerable accuracy because they expect that they'll have actual diagnostic useful information that they can use and that they can relay to those of us out here in uh, fantasy baseball and in real baseball who are really interested in seeing uh, Jacob deGrom coming back to the lineup and exciting us all with that skill. Boy, uh, speaking of that, what a what a rotation. <laughs> the Mets are already really dominating in the rotation and then they add Jacob deGrom, goodness me. Yeah, boy, uh, I wrote the uh, daily article today on a site on Friday for the uh, the pitcher matchups column tonight and the headliner is uh, Tyler Magel, who uh, pitches tonight against the Phillies and has been you know, very, very good through four starts so far. And I mean, everyone's been very, very good, right? <laughs> Scherzer's been terrific. Bassett and Mitt Magel have been great. Uh, you know, even Carlos Carrasco is, uh, you know, turned back the clock to, you know, 2016 or so he got, I think he got roughed up in his last start, but he's looked uh, much better after looking like he was for a while. It looked like he was the boat anchor attached to, Francisco Lindor when he came over from Cleveland, but, you know, he's actually contributing and, you know, making this a, uh, like you said, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's a deep rotation that has no room for DeGrom because that's just ridiculous, but they are doing more than tread water without him for sure. Double water metaphor, an anchor and treading water. You can't tread water (laughs) while you're uh, carrying an anchor. Yeah, Carrasco did get roughed up, but I think I made a, a note of this in last week's show, Ray. In the Mets rotation, Max Scherzer was actually like the fourth best ERA uh, out of the bunch. Though, and clearly the best pitcher, but uh, at the time, anyway, gosh, they had a bunch of guys whose ERAs were under two, and and uh, Scherzer was lagging along with a uh, really mundane two point five or something like that. So, uh, whatever the Mets are doing over there, they're doing it right. That's for sure. Uh, Ray, in addition to providing news coverage, as you know, our Baseball HQ team analysts look at what's coming up in the Playing Time Tomorrow articles, division-by-division reviews of potential roster and playing time changes, and one Playing Time Tomorrow that caught my eye was Alain de Leonardis' piece on the National League East, and specifically his take on the Atlanta bullpen, which I thought was solidly set with Kenley Jansen in the closer seat, but Alain says, maybe not. Yeah, this was a good take from Elena, who always has uh, not only insightful takes on the NL East, but um, full of full of some of those most obscure pop culture and historical references, and uh, you know one, one of one of the best literary works on the site every week. Uh, you know, tipping my cat to Elaine for that. But his point, um, you know, focusing on the baseball content was uh, that you know the very early returns on Kenley are not that he's in imminent danger. But that you know, the, his it, he's sort of continuing the uh, what you would expect for the late career deterioration of the closer skill set, right? And he's done really a masterful job of holding that together. I mean, you think you know, there there have been studies. Uh, you, you know, you and I have either seen them or written them back about the you know the lifespan of the closer, right? And that tends to be uh you know, typically a four to five year gig until the, uh, you know, the adrenaline and power arm, you know, power goose gossip style closer before you can't, uh, you can't get by with that anymore. And Jansen's going on, you know, a solid decade of uh, popping 30, 30, 35 save seasons here. Um, And he's been doing it, you know, since, you know, the last four years, five years, since like 20 years or so with, you know, deteriorating skills, but the results have remained solid. And I think Kenley, uh, Elaine's just reminding us that this is no longer 
vintage Dennis Eckersley. This is a uh, this is a guy on the backside of his uh, you know uh, of his velocity and raw and raw stuff who's now getting by with guile and that, that doesn't mean that he is in imminent danger but it doesn't mean that he's a mortal lock to keep it up either that there are you know there, there is an expiration date somewhere in the future on kenley Jan- jansen mortal lock closer yeah uh alan pointed out that in his peak uh, 2011 through 17 his lowest base performance value is 175 and that a lot of uh, a few of those years were 200, which is vintage Eck territory for three straight years. Now I think he's down around 145, which is still excellent. I mean, we we uh, as you said, we can't assume that because his skills have declined that they've collapsed. There's a there's a difference between that. But Alam pointed out that the uh, strikeouts are falling. That the uh, the 35 percent K rate. I shouldn't say the strikeouts are falling, but the swinging strike rate is falling, and that presages the likelihood that his 35 percent K rate is not going to be able to stand up unless he starts getting more first pitch strikes. So if that were to happen, I have uh, Colin McHugh and Will Smith in TGFBI. Should I be getting at all excited about these guys? Because I've been hoarding them for a while. Boy, I hope you haven't had McHugh active with his, uh, you know, as much as I like him, the 563 ERA this week and a 1-5 whip have not been uh, doing anybody any favors. But of course, you know, we know he's better than that, right? He's been getting uh, victimized by hit and strand rate problems, and his skills are, you know, as good as they've always been. You know, he was terrific in Tampa last year. He's really found a home as a multi-inning middle reliever with, you know, with elite skills. And in this age where, uh, you know, it's hard to find starters who in backs of rotations who are going five innings, having that um, that bridge reliever who gets multiple innings, uh, you know, in the National League, it's McHugh. In the American League, Garrett Whitlock has been doing some of that work. Jalen, Jalen Beeks just showed up in Tampa this week and, uh, you know, looks like he's another guy in that mold. Uh, so, you know, McHugh's not a – getting back to McHugh, he's not a typical flame-throwing closer. He only tops out at 90, 91 miles an hour. And like I said, his, you know, his pedigree is as a starter or a multi-inning reliever, not a closer. Uh, but you know, even what, even if he doesn't sniff the ninth inning, there's plenty of uh, plenty of value to be extracted. I absolutely think the Q is rosterable in a lot of those deeper mixed league formats. Yeah, last year he had six wins, vulturing in those middle innings, as you suggested. ERA of one and a half, uh, whip under one. These are quality innings. So far this year, he has been on my bench. You'll be relieved to hear. Uh, but And he hasn't been performing. But as you said, the skills are just terrific. Uh, Will Smith, the left-hander, what about him? Well, you know, he obviously was the guy who was supplanted when they signed Jansen. And Smith was the closer throughout the playoff run last year. And, you know, there were times I remember talking uh, during the preseason on either our show here or on another one where, you know, Smith was something of a roller coaster ride during the regular season last year. Uh, you know, looked pretty rocky at times and looked like he might even fall out of the role, but got locked in in October. And you would think that just based on that history, he would be the next guy up if Jansen needs either periodic days off or, you know, if something more serious happens there. But, you know, Elaine was pointing out that Smith not only isn't even the second best lefty in that bullpen, second best pitcher in that bullpen right now. He's not even the second. He's only the second best lefty as, uh, you know, AJ Minter in a uh, micro sample size has really been lights out so far for the Braves. And, you know, he's another one who going back a little bit further has some periodic closer experience and has been absolutely nasty in a 
you know, again, it's a micro sample size. It's something like seven innings. Uh, but in seven innings, he's got, uh, you know, nine innings now. He's got 14 strikeouts against two walks. Uh, and it, uh, so that's a 41% strikeout rate, uh, 250, 248 BPV, which, you know, is a good nine innings of worth work basically. So uh, Minter has been streaky and inconsistent throughout his career, but I think one thing we we know is the highs are very high, and he's on one right now. How long he can stay there, and whether he's throwing at this level if a ninth inning opportunity arises is still an open question. But uh, you know, when Minter's throwing this good, he's almost unhittable, and that's the version we have for the moment. I thought Alain made an interesting point in that uh, Minter's strikeout rate probably going to go down a little. His walk rate's probably going to come up a little just based on the past and the and the way that the balls and strikes are shaping up and so forth. But at the same time, he's only getting 15% ground balls, which is out of line for his track record. So maybe the one will offset the other and, and his current really good season will continue. You might want to think about putting A.J. Minter depending on league depth and those kind of considerations. But if he's available in your free agent pool as a stash with your league rules, I think you could do worse. Uh, let's go over to Pittsburgh. Uh, another good news, bad news situation. <laughs> Pittsburgh these days, isn't it always a bad news situation? You might be tempted to ask. But they did get to activate outfielder Brian Reynolds from the COVID list. I think he was only uh, one game off before he came back. But the bad news is they had to send uh, shortstop Kevin Newman to the real 10-day IL. He's got a left groin strain. Rick Green covers the Pirates for playing time today. Let's start with Reynolds. I think we can polish him off pretty quickly since he pretty obviously slots right back into his outfield spot and middle of the order type thing in a run-producing batting order slot. I mean, sure, to the extent that the Pirates ever produce runs, you know, being in the middle of that lineup is where it's supposed to happen, right? So that's, uh, you know, they they are scoring, you know, three and a three seven three point seven runs per game so far this year, which I mean is bad, but is also obviously a plague affecting everyone across the league. So that's actually probably bad, but unremarkably bad. Um, you know, their team team OBP is three oh three, which is pretty rough. Uh has them down in the neighborhood of Baltimore and Texas, which which is not in the neighborhood you really want to be, you know, maintaining your, your, your maintaining a residence in. Yeah, if I'm going to that neighborhood, I'm going to wait till they start to gentrify, that's for sure. Yeah, lock your car door. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by way of example, you have a team with very low on-base percentage, so even when Reynolds is hitting the ball, he's not going to drive, drive in runners who aren't there. He has two RBIs on his own home runs and one other RBI. So three RBIs for the season, and two of them have come in his own run, home runs, four runs scored only. Um, but, of course, he's sub-600 on the OPS, so he hasn't exactly been tattooing the ball. But he's a really good player. Uh, if this is a kind of a a down period for him based on the team and based on his own performance, and somebody in your league was thinking of offering him up in a deal or for by some miracle has put him on waivers, this is somebody who should always be considered, especially con- with the added consideration that he might get traded. Yeah, putting him in the middle of a better lineup is only a uh... – Positive benefit, right? Yeah, you know, there was some there was some discussion in the preseason about a long term contract. You know, I, I don't know how quick P- Pittsburgh will be to trade him, but you know that door, just because it's P- Pittsburgh, has to be considered at least ajar, right? But you know, you're right for the balance of the season. If this is is this a buy low opportunity on Reynolds, regardless of where he's playing, I would say absolutely. Our projections, you know, we're calling for the walks and strikeouts to level off. Uh, you know, 22 home runs over the balance of the year. RBIs and runs in the 70s, and his OPS is you know projected to back 
to bounce back up into uh, you know with the mid eight hundreds. So you know that's certainly a lot better than what we've seen over the first three weeks. Meanwhile, Ray, what happens to the shortstop spot with Newman out? And of course, what people are interested in is this the call up period for O'Neill Cruz? It seems like no. Please check back in a month or so. <laughs> and you know, to be fair, it's probably not just about uh, service time manipulation, although. You know, I think I think Pittsburgh is Sanskrit for service time manipulation. Um, but uh, you know, O'Neill is not doing much in AAA to force the Pirates' hands or create a controversy out of this. Uh, it's 16 games down there, he's batting 190 with uh, you know was an OBP that starts with a two and a slug that starts with a three. Uh, one home run, eight RBIs. So he's not ter- he's he's not tearing the cover off the ball, not you know booking a flight to Pittsburgh every day or anything like that. Uh, so you know, Pittsburgh will be happy to let him take his time to get his swing ironed out in triple uh, a and, you know, and revisit this sometime down the road. Uh, they also sent down uh witch on park and Cole Tucker was on the COVID list. So uh, Diego Castillo has kind of moved in from right field to be the shortstop for the short term. Uh, and we'll see how long that lasts. Castillo hit at the top of the order a couple of times alternating with, uh, and how about this? The guy he's alternating with at the top of the order is noted speedster Dan Vogelback. What the heck is going on there? Shades of Jeremy Giambi back in the day. Yeah, boy. I, it, and it's actually kind of working, which is pretty funny. But I, I made a reference. Like I said, I wrote the uh, matchups column today. And I referred to the Phillies lineup as, you know, with, with their defensive problems as a slow-pitch softball lineup. But, boy, you you, you don't have a better slow-pitch softball leadoff hitter than Dan Vogelbach, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, certainly not a green light on the base paths for uh, for Dan Vogelbach. So Castillo could be uh, moving in, I think, depending on how he does for on-base percentage. If he can even come within sort of shouting distance of Dan Vogelbach, they have to consider the added speed as a benefit in that regard. I think he could be an intriguing pickup. I'm talking about Diego Castillo for National League-only leagues right now, deeper mixed, especially if he sees some time at the top of the order. Yeah, like we said, the Pirates aren't scoring runs at all anyway, so if he gets at the top of the order and you know gets on base, why wouldn't they give him a green light and try to you know spark something to happen there? It's not like they have uh, you know murderers row behind him in the two through five spots. They should be uh, looking to ma- manufacture some runs and get some uh, – you know, put some pressure on the defense. So, you know, I would agree there's a, there's an opportunity there. Castillo has to check a couple of boxes on his own. He has to hit enough uh, to stay in the lineup and keep, you know, hold down the shortstop job to begin with and let alone stake a claim to a higher spot in the batting order. But, you know, all of those opportunities are laid out in front of him. Plus he joins that club of uh, guys like Luis Garcia who are, have namesakes who are pitchers and confuse the matter tremendously when you're trying to do V lookups on your Excel spreadsheet with a guy named Luis Garcia and you're constantly getting the wrong information. Yeah, I really need to go through and put middle initials on all of the Luis Garcias in our database so that we can uh, save ourselves that agony because I've fallen into that rat hole, that rat stats once or twice myself. What I've done is I've appended a pitcher or a hitter as a, as a tag after the name. So it's Castillo, comma, Diego, comma, Pittsburgh or a pitcher or whatever, whatever I can think of to try to even it out. But when you get past two Luis Garcias or two Diego Castillos, then you really start running into trouble and you wish there was a universal numbering system because there's 
there's lots of numbering systems, but uh, no two of them seem to overlap. So it's uh, it's a challenge for those of us who use spreadsheets. And uh, I imagine most of our listeners are out there going, who cares? Uh, move on. <laughs> so let's move on. The Pirates do have other options at second base and shortstop. Uh, Michael Chavis, uh, Tucupita Marcano, which is, should be uh, somebody who gets a- extra credit for just for that cool name, and Josh Van Meter have all played a little bit around the middle infield. Yeah, they have pieces to mix and match with here uh, to the extent that they want to. Dan Marcus took a look at this in our playing time tomorrow piece. He, he pointed out that Van Meter probably you know, was a waiver claim in late March, probably doesn't figure into the long-term plans, but you know he's a versatile piece with a little pop in his bat. He's gotten some time at second base. Uh, I obviously know Chavez a little bit from uh, his time with Boston. Uh, he might be a sneaky candidate for for a larger role here. Uh, he's played first and second a couple of times each, uh, and you know he's if he got some shortstop time in, he could even qualify all around the infield, which would be kind of cool for five game leaguers. And you know he's been kind of. T- you know, lost at the plate for most of his major league career. In particular, his strikeout rate was off the charts. That you know, in, in early samples this year, it looks like that's getting a little bit better. So uh, you know, maybe there's some uh, late Bull Durham prospect energy behind him. Uh, and the Pirates seem to see that because uh, they're moving him out of that bad side platoon role a little bit and starting to give him uh, more at bats versus right-handers, which, you know, as recently as last year would have been like instant instant death. But, uh, you know, that just shows that not only is he making progress, but the Pirates are aware of it. So, uh, and then, the, you know, the last piece is that, uh, you know, Cabrian Hayes is obviously the mainstay on this infield over, over at third base, but uh, he's actually slid to shortstop a couple of times in the last week since Newman got hurt. So that's another way that Chavez uh, could get in the lineup because he's probably better suited to play third than short, and they could if they're willing to move Hayes around a little bit more, that's another path available to them. Adds a little value to Hayes himself, of course, if he gets corner and middle infield eligibility. Uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, uh, Michael Chavis has dropped his K rate. I looked at that. Has he ever? 33% in Boston, 22% in Pittsburgh. This looks like a complete remodeling of his whole approach at the plate. It does. And you know, he always had a touch of... Uh, you know, of the power and patience kind of profile, which was what made him a prospect because, you know, it looked like, you know, a, a middle infielder who would take some walks and could, uh, you know, could pop the ball periodically was uh, a guy who would find a major league career, but it was just swamped by the, uh, by, by the, by the, uh, let me go back to my water metaphor, metaphors, t- tidal wave of strikeouts, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but that's gotten a lot better, right? The tidal wave has receded, and uh, you know now some of those other skills are starting to shine through a little bit. Again, we're looking at micro sample sizes here, so uh, you know he could have a five strikeout night tomorrow, and all, and, and all of this could just go up in smoke. But uh, you know, for now, that's what we see. Yeah, it doesn't look like it. I've been doing some research lately, just well, not research really, just glancing around, but it looks like strikeouts and walks kind of stabilized a little more quickly than a lot of the other metrics. And if you see a guy who's made this kind of a sea change, of course you have to be cautious in assuming that uh, an 11% improvement in strikeout rate is going to be a, a lasting thing when it's only been 15 or 16 games and less than that probably for him. But I like his chances. Uh, I wonder if it was maybe just that spotlight in Boston. You know, you've got to produce, you got to produce. We've got a million guys behind you waiting to play. you got to produce. And, and maybe he just put a lot of pressure on himself and started overswinging his ability or overswinging his natural inclinations, as you said. Yeah, it's entirely possible. He he rode, he rode the AAA shuttle an awful lot in Boston. And, you know, sometimes that's just not a great thing for, 
a player's development, either from the you know confidence or I got to hit two home runs up here in the majors tonight so I can stay perspective. And just for, you know, even for the time down in AAA to be, you know, working on things and trying to, you know, make long-term changes to his swing or, you know, his approach as opposed to hoping every night after the game that the manager taps him and says you're going to Boston in the morning, right? Um, I'd like to look at one of your favorite metrics here. Um, hard contact index, you know, is a quick microcosm of the changes here. Like you said, these things tend to st- stabilize a little bit more quickly, but 2019, he, he was, you know, 100 to start off 100 is league average on the hard contact index. 2019, he was at 74, 2020 in a short season, 90. Last year, back to 67. So three years of, you know, almost a full season of at-bats, and he was well above average in that metric. Uh, so far this year, 109. So 9% above average, uh, which probably is somewhat indicative of, average moving here in the dead ball era a little bit but uh you know that's also a a microcosm of how much gain he has realized here so good for him it is good for him a cautionary note about hard contact index is that it's basically hard contact times contact rate and he's made such a huge improvement in his contact rate that could explain most of the improvement in the hard contact index so we shouldn't infer from that that his hard contact has improved Really, uh, that ought to be looked at separately, I, I think, and there are certainly lots of metrics to to, to do so, barrel rates and, and hard hard hit rates, according to StatCast, and those kind of things, exit velocities and what have you. Haven't done that, but let's move on to the Cincinnati Reds. Oi, I'm a Reds fan, as you know. What a season this is turning out to be. Uh, a little bit of good news, I guess, that they got infielder Jonathan India back from the 10-day IL. On Tuesday, they sent down a, a Alejo Lopez and a shortstop JT Riddle. Tom Kephart covers the Reds for playing time today. What are the playing time ramifications for the return of Jonathan India? Well, good news, obviously, for the Reds, who, like so many other teams, have had trouble scoring runs. India at the top of the lineup is you know, sort of a pretty critical piece to them. Uh, and he checks a lot of ba- boxes from the fantasy perspective. Well, you know, his, his profile of line drives, above average power, double-digit stolen bases and, you know, the leadoff spot. So a bunch of counting stats are all, uh, those are all good. Those are all good things there. When I saw that Lopez had been sent down, it looked to me like a boon for a reserve infielder, the veteran Colin Moran. I remember him being at least somewhat productive in four seasons in Pittsburgh, but I'm not sure I'm right. Yeah, you are. It's been a little while, but, uh, you know, 1,500 or so at bats with the Pirates. You know, he was a 269 hitter. Uh, you know, with an average, you know, not not huge power, 11 home runs, 40 runs, 50 RBIs. Or so, now, you know, not really a mixed league playable asset. Um, but it seemed to me in recent years he was selling out for that power a little bit. The batting average was was kind of trending down, and he was trying to force the power. Uh, but you know, we boosted his projection um, at third base versus right-handers for the short term, probably enough that it makes him uh, mixed league worthy. Uh, maybe not quite mixed league worthy, but certainly an NL, um, NL only or a you know, greater than 15 team mixed league option, I would say, for the, as long as he's getting the at bats. According to Baseball Reference, Moran's nickname is Redbeard. You know why? Uh, <laughs> does he have a red beard? He does indeed. And that's the kind of insight you get here at Baseball HQ Radio. <laughs> Here's a more nuanced question, though. Why did the Phillies add Roman Quinn to their major league roster? Well, they're still trying to figure out uh, 
<laughs> he doesn't have a red beard, right? But um, they're still trying to figure, they're still trying to figure out uh, you know what the heck to do with center field out there. Uh, but you know, I think also it might have something to do with uh, another month of expanded rosters, and he can you know be a defensive replacement in center field, be a pinch runner uh, at least until he pulls his next hamstring, which is probably just a couple of days or a week away. Uh, and you know, he's also a switch hitter, so uh, you know he does a lot of different things in a mediocre fashion. Is that probably the best way to put it? Seems fair, yeah, and accurate, you know, because that, that that's about it. Uh, what about Odubel Herrera? I've lost track of Odubel Herrera. Yeah, I mean, Odubel's, you know, I saw him uh, hitting the cover off the ball one night earlier this week. He's, you know, you know, sharing center field with Matt Veerling there and, you know, may have the upper hand in that. I battle was probably an overstatement, right? Um, but, but, you know, he may have, skirmish. He may have, <laughs> skirmish, there we go. Uh, tete a tete. Uh, but <laughs> Tiff. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he, he, he seems to be sticking out a little bit of, a, uh, of an upper hand in that mix for the moment. Quinn takes the roster spot of infielder Bryson Stott, who was optioned to AAA. The last time I had Stott on my mind was in spring training because he was, speaking of tearing the cover off the ball, he really had a terrific spring. He did, and he forgot to bring it north with him, I think. Uh, you have, But his string OPS, spring OPS was up around 1,100. Uh, and it was first week or so in the majors, 4 for 14, couple of RBIs. Looked like he was going to stick. But then... Uh, you know what really happened is he went cold, and Alec Baum went uh, went bomb as in hot, and uh, you know really took third base away from him. Uh, and you know after uh, Stott, you know went back to more of a part time role and went uh, you know went over sixteen in his some spot starts and pitch hitting appearances over a couple of weeks. I think the Phillies decided that it was uh, time to go get him some regular playing time. Which was not unreasonable, you know. They kind of you know the big spring kind of rushed him a little bit. He had only had uh, forty-one plate appearances in his career above Double A, so he'll go back and add to that total for a little while. And before we move on to the American League, Ray, uh, I saw this news item and I just wondered what you thought. Uh, Arizona recalled left-hander Tyler Gilbert from Triple A. Okay, but the real news here was that they designated left-hander Oliver Perez for assignment, and it looks like the end of a. Not exactly storied, but certainly worthwhile. 21 years in the big leagues. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, only, only seven appearances this year, and he was getting knocked around pretty good. But, you know, overall, quite a, quite a run from a fantasy perspective. 21-year career. Uh, he only returned positive value five times, such as the nature of the, uh, the left-handed middle reliever. Uh, but, he, you know, he was a starter for a while, too. He had a $23 season back. Uh, back in his third year, which is what, like 2005 or something like that. Uh, you know, a full season of a 298 ERA, 115 whip, 239 strikeouts. That was a big number. Uh, if he's done, he'll finish up at, you know, 1,500 innings or so, a 437 ERA, a 143 whip, uh, you know, more than a strikeout inning for his career. But, you know, for me, when I think of Oliver Perez, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is always that Barry Bonds called him the toughest pitcher he ever faced, which, you know, if that were me, put that right on my tombstone. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely not going to get it engraved on your bust at uh, Cooperstown, but it is a tremendous compliment when a guy who, who hit that well and who understood pitchers that well was willing to say something like that about uh, Perez. I mean, mind you, there are, if you look through the annals of baseball history, there are all kinds of weird pitchers dominating hitters, hitters dominating pitchers, uh, all over the place, like scrub hitters, you know, 
borderline guys who just had their way with Roger Clemens or Sam McDowell or, you know, some kind of extraordinary pitcher who just got thumped every time he faced some nondescript hitter. That happens in baseball, and maybe this is the case for Oliver Perez having that kind of a spell over uh, Barry Bonds. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for pinch-hitting while Nick is gallivanting around Disney World. Uh, Let's turn to your regular bailiwick and talk about the news from the American League. And uh, the big news, of course, Kansas City announced that shortstop Adalberto Mondesi was diagnosed with a torn ACL in his left knee. He came up limping uh, on Tuesday, I think, against Chicago, and he's going to miss the rest of the season, or almost certainly going to miss the rest of the season. The Royals made a couple of moves in response. They recalled outfielder Kyle Isbell and infielder Emmanuel Rivera from uh, AAA and sent right-hander Brady Singer back out to AAA. A lot of stuff going on here in Kansas City. Let's start with a little bit of a game of musical chairs in their lineup. Yeah, let me start with uh, you know, a bit of a humorous story, actually. Um, we are running a hiring cycle at HQ now, looking for some uh, additional writers, including in the playing time today space. We sent out a mock um, exercise for people like two weeks ago, the candidates to do a writing exercise based on the scenario where Adalberto Montesi tears a knee ligament and we they have to adjust the Royals playing time accordingly. So I've actually got like a couple of dozen people in my inbox telling me how this is supposed to play out. So it's very <laughs> handy. You know, Brent's prognostication in this one was uh was top notch. But uh anyway the way it's actually playing out from the Kansas City perspective is that Nicky Lopez slid over from second base to shortstop. Whit Merrifield came in from right field back to second base, which opens up right field and you get uh, our old friend Edward Olivares in that mix. You get Kyle Isbell, who's been called up uh, from the minors and probably takes the good side of a platoon there with the two of them. Uh, that's the that's the initial configuration they seem to be going with. Uh, I think there are some longer-term questions about where they go here because they could do some things differently. It's notable that they didn't move Bobby Witt from third base to shortstop. Uh, you know, Witt's obviously struggling a little bit at the plate, so they probably didn't want to complicate things for him. Uh, but whether or not they do that, they also have Hunter Dozier around who could go to third base or go to right field and free up the DH spot, uh, which gives them options to call up some of their other kids. Nick Prado is a guy who you know, had a pretty good spring, and you know, based on his work in the minors, looks like he's almost ready to come up. Uh, MJ Melendez had a lot of sort of preseason draft buzz uh, the, who he's a catcher with some real slug who could factor into that DH mix as well. Uh, Melendez in particular is not hitting well at all at AAA right now. So they're probably going to wait till one of those guys forces their hand. But uh, so for now, circling back, it's Isbell, who's probably the primary beneficiary. But, you know, as the summer goes on, the Royals have different options should they choose to explore them. I was going to ask you, the next time you have a, a writing competition, could it start with a scenario where I win the Powerball and we have to figure out <laughs> how do right I handle all the money? <laughs> Ray and BD uh, are on their private island. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I'll make a, a quick quip here about uh, that only Canadian listeners will get, but the, the private island will be, of course, always welcome uh, to Mr. Trudeau to come and visit at our expense, of course. He got in trouble for doing that with, with a ah. guy who had a private island in uh, in the Bahamas. I thought uh, maybe Isbell might get into a platoon situation with Olivares at uh, right field. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I think that's probably how it plays out and how our uh, 
playing time estimates are basically reflecting that at the moment. Uh, for Oliveris, even the short side of a platoon is uh, better news than uh, riding the Omaha shuttle every three days like he did last year, right, PD? Yeah, that's right. We had a little song actually here at Baseball HQ Radio about that. Uh, Nick Prado, if he were to get called up, he looks like he'd probably slot into the DH, but Carlos Santana is not doing anything. Is Carlos Santana's playing time at risk? I, I think we're getting to that point. I, you know, he's on a two-year contract, I believe, so he's a free agent at the end of the year. And, you know, it it gets to the point where not unlike Albert Pujols in Anaheim a couple of years ago, even if he's making money, when it gets to the point where he's clogging up a roster spot that would be better used by somebody who's part of the future of the franchise, i.e. Nick Prado, then you wouldn't be surprised to see, uh, you know, him either traded for a bag of balls or outright released. Um, I don't think we're there yet. They're going to give him some more rope, but uh, that's, uh, you know, I think that's, that move is certainly on the radar for some time this summer. And you mentioned that uh, Bobby Witt might not move over to shortstop as we might expect, because it would complicate things with him having struggles at the plate and you don't want to muck things up by having him play a tougher defensive position, but shortstop is his natural position. And it got me wondering, could his current offensive struggles be related to the fact that they did shift him away from his regular spot to a new spot and he's having a little trouble coping with third base? Maybe this would help moving him over. You know, that's certainly worth consideration. You would think the Royals would be sensitive to that. You know, if if shortstop is in fact the position he's played his whole life, you're right. Moving him back there seems like it would be the opposite of complicating things for him, right? But, um, you know, maybe they don't want to yank him back and forth or, I mean, clearly Mondesi, like you said, an ACL should be out for the year. So I don't think there's any reason to think that, you know, if he went back to shortstop that he, he wouldn't stay there forever, but, uh, you know, maybe they just don't want to do it on the fly. Maybe, you know, maybe they just to shake the rust off, they would uh, send him down and let him play a week at shortstop and come back up. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of ways that could play out, but, you know, I still think it's, I don't think I'm the only one who thinks that, you know, Witt's career-long home is going to be a shortstop, not a third base, you know, at least, in, you know, for the pri- for the prime years of his career. So why you wouldn't start that clock now, I don't know. But, you know, this is where we are. We just report the news. We don't get to write it, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the reason I ask, though, is because uh, Emmanuel Rivera, one of the guys they called up, is primarily a corner infielder. He's not a middle infielder. And so if they figure that he has a role to play in this uh, musical chairs game that we've been discussing, it looks like he would probably be playing third base, which seems to be a forward-looking plan to get Witt off third base, at least sometimes, and over to short. And then what happens to Nicky Lopez at that point? If uh, the outfielders are playing well, you've got Witt Merrifield at second. He could go back to the outfield, but now you've got a cascade out there. In a way, it's uh, it's kind of like having a fantasy roster where you have all these guys who play first, second in the outfield, and the next guy plays short outfielder and dog catcher, and, and you're trying to fit all these pieces together in the most optimal way, and it's awful confusing. Exactly. And then, you know, the other aspect that the major league teams have to worry about, you know, we're sort of in the same mindset in the fantasy world, but, you know, they're very much in the big leagues in the mode of, you know, preserving as many assets as they can and not uh, not trying to lose guys unnecessarily. I didn't get a chance to go confirm this, but my, my suspicion on Rivera was that that might have been a 40-man roster situation where he was on the roster and, you know, 40-man rosters are you know, we're at the point these days where they're clogged with like 23, 24 pitchers, right? So it might have been that this was the, you know, the only, you know, 
um, punitive infielder that they had available to call up, even though he's not truly a shortstop. And maybe that shuffles the next time they free up a 40 man spot by putting somebody on the 60 man DL, 60 day IL, or, you know, releasing Carlos Santana or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it does seem like if Witt is even the emergency shortstop with Rivera covering third base in a scenario, then. You know, if he could be the emergency shortstop, he could be the primary shortstop, right? That just seems logical to me. <laughs> it does. And, of course, Kansas City, had they thought there might be a third base issue because of wit, Hunter Dozier plays third base. You know, he's no Brooks Robinson, but he can handle the, the position at least well enough to get by. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they could do... Like, like I was saying, in terms of creating paths for Prado or Melendez, they could do that by putting Dozier in the outfield more often. They could do that by putting him at third base more often. Uh, and, you know, Dozier has been hit a little bit better this year, too. So it's not like Dozier is, uh, you know, teetering on the same brink of what Carlos Santana is, is teetering on. He's, you know, Dozier's six years younger. He's a lot cheaper. He's more versatile. You can put him in all these different places we're talking about. And he's not embarrassing himself at the plate. So, you know, he's, he should stay in the lineup somewhere, but the, uh, you know, the somewhere, uh, offers at least some options for creativity. It's funny that Kansas city seems to be one of those places where the threshold is he's not embarrassing himself. <laughs> you know, if you're in New York, that doesn't quite cut it, but in Kansas city, it'll do, uh, let's move on to the white Sox. Uh, Eloy Jimenez is out uh, for six to eight weeks. Going to be a lot of moving parts in Chicago as well. I should think. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, obviously, a tough blow for the White Sox. Yeah, that this is the caliber of bat you, uh, you know, you may replace the position, but you're not replacing the productivity, right? So it's going to be some Andrew Vaughn out there, Adam Hazley, who they picked up uh, in March, will factor into that mix as well. And uh, you know, their current fourth outfielder, Adam Engel, who sort of plugs into all three outfield spots, uh, is is another option there. So they can, uh, you know, they've got paths to covered that up um all of those covered uh in our playing time today by tom kephart and then the the other one that i was going to throw in on top of um those outfielders as we had a note in our al central playing time tomorrow piece this week uh where uh brent wrote that up for us and he pointed out that jake Berger's done a pretty good job at third base uh you know filling hitting about 279 and with a little bit of pop while Yoan Moncada has been out and Moncada is close to returning, but at least with the expanded rosters for another month or so here, Berger probably has done enough to stick around and there may be some sort of team pretzel movement possibilities where they can either, you know, send Berger out to figure things out in left field or Makata still needs some days off or Berger gets to DH and Vaughn goes out to the outfield. Uh, you know, the, the, so Berger may actually be one of the guys that clings to a little bit of playing time. If you thought he was going right back to triple a, when Mankata comes back, uh, you know, the, uh, the Eloy injury may, may delay that demotion. Yeah, I was watching the game Wednesday, and he almost hit for the cycle. He needed a triple, which is the hardest one to get, especially if you're not particularly fleet of foot. But he has been really hot with the bat of late. Mind you, that's a certain amount of recency bias is built in, and you really should be looking at the skills as far as making fantasy decisions about your roster. Also, Luis Robert is kind of squeezing Berger's playing time. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Berger's going to be lim- pretty limited when he, uh, you know, and, and where they can slide him in. But, you know, Robert, you know, will have center fielder under control. So there's no, uh, you know, direct conflict there. But, you know, when Robert was out for, you know, a couple of days as well, then, you know, all of those uh, fill-in outfielders that we were talking about were stretched a little more thin. But as Robert comes back and Moncada comes back, then uh, yeah, it, it gets uh, it gets a little more crowded here even without Eloy. But, you know, Berger's uh, in this in this day and age of uh, light offensive productivity, it's uh, probably tougher than ever to put a hot bat on the bench. And if Berger's a hot bat, he may continue to find at bats. That was the recommendation in playing time today. If you have Berger, stash him on your reserve if it's at all possible under your league rules because he has a pretty good chance of finding some playing time over the course of the year, especially since we have to expect everybody's going to get hurt sooner or later. Let's move on. Uh, really, really bad news for Baltimore. Not that they needed any more bad news really or otherwise. And that is John Means, who was somewhat quietly pretty close to ace status last year and uh, a, a much higher draft pick this year than he was last year. He goes on the shelf. He's going to have Tommy John surgery. He may miss all of this year and next. Yeah, not only is it bad news, I think you kind of hit on the headline there. You know, TJ is never good news, but it's kind of the worst time of year for TJ because, you know, you're looking at, you know, best case scenario, uh, you know, some kind of cameo second half of 2023 return for him. And then, you know, not not full strength, regular workload, regular offseason until 2024. It's, a you know, just a tough time for that to happen. So, you know, tough break for memes, tough break for the Orioles in that, you know, he was the, uh, you know, unquestioned leader of a, you know, otherwise very unproven staff. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a good chance to refresh on, you know, what they have left there, such as, such as it is, right? Such as it is indeed, Jordan Lyles, you got Tyler Wells, Bruce Zimmerman had a couple of decent outings and then got crushed, and Spencer Watkins, that's only four. <laughs> Already you're looking for a fifth starter, and gosh, there's not a lot to look at. And Grayson Rodriguez, who would be the obvious choice for a call-up, yeah, all eyes, you know, for the Orioles, the suffering Orioles fans, turn to um, Grayson Rodriguez and, to a lesser extent, DL Hall. Uh, Rodriguez actually has been throwing okay in AAA. I see a uh, two forty five ERA and twenty eight strikeouts in eighteen innings. So uh, across four starts, so they're managing the workload. But he's, uh, you know, twenty eight strikeouts in eighteen innings will play. Uh, DL Hall is down in AA, so you know, presumably even further away. But uh, I actually looked at him this morning and. Uh, you know he's uh, he's he's not being tested much in Double A. Uh, he's given a, he's got a three thirteen ERA, but get this fifty six strikeouts in thirty one innings, uh, knocking on the door of two strikeouts in innings. So uh, I think we can at least say that Hall is not long for Double A. He'll be uh, joining Rodriguez and Norfolk pretty soon, I would think. The Orioles are going to start uh, Kyle Bradish uh, as an emergency spot start. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's, uh, you know, we have him projected to be actually, you know, not terrible with an ERA, a tick under four, uh, you know, whip stock rate of 144, uh, projected BPV of 80. So, I mean, you know, generic average pitcher plugging in, but, you know, hey, by Orioles standards, that's actually pretty good, right? It is sad to say pretty good for, for Baltimore anyway. And it, isn't it sort of 
ironic that, uh, by all accounts, one of the reasons they moved the outfield fence back in left field was because Means was getting victimized with home runs over the left field fence. It's going to cost some Baltimore hitters some home runs, and now they're not even going to get the John Means benefit to show for it. Uh, you earlier mentioned, Ray, the uh, playing time tomorrow space at Baseball HQ. We've talked about this before, and what those analysts do is they look at all five teams in the division and they look ahead. Playing time today is kind of looking a little bit backwards and in the very near future, but the playing time tomorrow feature looks at the rosters on these various teams and says what might happen two weeks from now, three weeks from now to allow fantasy managers to plan ahead, maybe target some guys for stashing and so forth. And one of the uh, recent playing time tomorrows about the uh, American League Central had uh, an interesting bit in Minnesota about uh, Trevor Larnock, who started the year a little bit cold, got sent down, he's been recalled, and now he seems to be doing a lot better. Yeah, exactly. He's been, <laughs> he took an early ride on the AAA shuttle, but uh, I he, uh, you know, th- there have been some opportunities in the Minnesota outfield, what with uh, Alex Kirilov, you know, had that, uh, you know, flare up of his sort of chronic wrist problem, which when it happened sounded, pretty bad that you know he might be out for a long time but now it sounds like you know they got that straightened out down in the minors uh you've got the got the swelling and pain out of there and he's close to returning uh but the point that brent was making here is you know we've seen a lot of larnack and gilberto celestino and garlic kyle garlic while both kirilov was out and then we had those few days when byron buxton was out which luckily didn't turn into a major issue for Buxton. But, uh, you know, amid all of that churn, Larnack has uh, acquitted himself pretty well in the majors. And when Kirilov comes back, Celestino or Garlic figured to be the loser. But, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where if they can find enough semi-regular playing time for Larnack, he has sort of demonstrated that, uh, you know, he's done enough to suggest that maybe he should stick around. So, uh, you know, don't be too quick on the drop button on Trevor Larnack when Kirilov returns because they're, uh, you know, he, he may continue to get opportunities there. And obviously one of the things we're seeing in the early season is that's a pretty good lineup. And, you know, even if he's further down in that lineup with, uh, you know, Buxton, Correa, Polenko, uh, teed up at the top of it, you know, even Miguel Sano is batting like seventh in that group, but that lineup scores a lot of runs and, uh, you know, if Larnock's getting a few, st- a few starts a week there, he can still, uh, you know, fill in some counting stats. Something else Brent noticed and commented upon was the possibility that Larna could be in line from some DH at-bats because Gary Sanchez is on the shelf. There was some skepticism about how the Twins would use Sanchez given the, uh, you know, his struggles behind the plate. And, uh, you know, while he was healthy, you know, there was a there was, there was a pretty decent split there. He uh, He's caught six times and DH'd four. So, you know, they're, you know, being pretty tentative about putting him behind the plate, but right now, you know, the, uh, he's, he's out with, uh, you know, some kind of abdominal pull and we know how those things can linger. So that might be even another opportunity for Larnock to either Larnock to stay in the lineup by DHing, or maybe they bring Karoloff back and have him DH a little while to, uh, you know, ease him with the wrist. Although I think the wrist is more of a problem with the plate than the outfield. So I don't know how much that helps, but either way, Sanchez is, uh, you know, if he's, if his absence continues, that's uh, another path for Larnock. Brent also wrote about the Tigers and the catching situation there, and there may be a path to playing time 
Not that he needs a full path to playing time, but there may be a path to more playing time for uh, outfielder Eric Haas, who's nominally eligible at catcher as well. Yeah, that's right. And it, you know, catcher got catcher eligible guys who play elsewhere are nice assets to have. You know, Brent actually made a you know without the speed, it's a sort of uh, Dalton Varcho kind of profile here where. You know, he's catcher eligible, but picking up at bats in other places. And he's been sort of, I think we tagged him as one of the initial uh, beneficiaries of Riley Green getting hurt uh, because, you know, he's a, you know, left field DH kind of guy and those at bats kind of freed up when Badu had to move over to the center field. And now Badu started slowly and some other guys are, you know, chipping into that mix as well. But Haas is finding playing time between, uh, between doing a little bit of catching, uh, a little bit of DHing, a little bit in the outfield, he's DH twice. He's caught seven times. He's played the left field five times. So you know now you're up over fifty um, percent playing time, and you know, you're picking up work in different places and not having the wear and tear of catcher. And he's demonstrated that uh, you know he's he, he's shown some pop in his prior prior work. It's an above average uh, power profile. So you know what's not to like. Well, what's not to like is 34% strikeouts, I think, is the main issue. Oh, that. It definitely puts a, a pretty low ceiling on his batting average, which is always something we have to think about nowadays. Although I'm curious what you think about this from a fantasy planning perspective. We know that power is down. We know that uh, batting is generally down in the big leagues. Is the compression in the number of hit, the number of strikeouts hasn't changed that much, so we'd expect that it doesn't take as much of a batting average to be a contributor. But on the flip side of that, can we absorb lower batting average guys like Haas because the envelope of acceptable batting averages is pretty narrow and lower than it used to be? I think potentially it's going to be a little bit of a case by case because you've got to worry about. Um, you know, how, how the attrition slides. If Haas stays a, you know, 230 hitter like he was last year and the league moves down and he's stable, sure, we can absorb that. The trouble is, you know, he's hitting the buck 39 right now. Uh, we can, so it's only 36 at bats, but even if he slides from, you know, 230 to 210 or 200, you know, then, you know, relative to the league, you're still losing. So, uh, but, you know, he's a, these are small sample quirks here. It's only 36 at bats. He's hitting the buck 39, but he's actually putting the ball in play more after striking out 34% of the time last year. You know, he's, uh, he's up to, um, he's only struck out five times in those 36 at bats this year, which is a lot better. He's just not having any luck on the balls in play. So we got to wait and see what, it, how, as things stabilize there, how his, how his profile holds up relative to what we know about him from 350 at bats last year. And the last thing to talk about in Brent's coverage of the American League Central is the closer situation in Kansas City. And this is a real interesting story. I think we all look at Tampa and, and say, oh, here's a place where 14 different guys might get saves. And it was starting to look like that in Kansas City, but it seems like uh, things are stabilizing for Barlow. Barlow and Stomont have you know sort of become the two-headed monster there. And, you know, Scott Barlow doesn't always get, uh, you know, he, there have been a couple of times when he's worked the, uh, you know, three or four outs in the seventh and the eighth against the meat of the lineup and then left the ninth for Stomont. And you know, I, I think the bottom line here is we've established that the Kansas City version of Mike Matheny will manage his bullpen as a committee. 
and Barlow and Stillman may be the heads of that committee right now. But what Brent points out here is that there are other guys sort of down the pecking order right now who are at least flashing skills that might get them to work their way up into that Stillman Barlow territory if either of them fought or if these guys continue to look good. Um, he called out Dylan Coleman, who's a guy who got some uh, some very very late draft, uh, you know, like round 49, 50 draft and hold kind of um, kind of attention this offseason. But then also uh, Taylor Clark and Colin Snyder is two other guys who are uh, showing some swing and miss and some good velocity in that bullpen. So they're in uh, they're they're toiling in middle relief now, but uh, th- they are you know maybe deep AL only watch list kind of guys uh, for ratio protection. And who knows, you know, Matheny has shown, as we said, that he'll, he'll kind of put anybody in any situation. So there might even be uh, some ancillary saves later this summer. If, uh, if these guys keep looking like they're worthy of it. There was some buzz preseason about Dylan Coleman. And uh, that's another guy that Brent did uh, mention, but no mention of Amir Garrett, who's still on our depth chart at uh, 10% of the saves and has some closing experience, as we know, in Cincinnati in another fairly muddled situation. Boy, that situation, yep, that situation is muddled, but, um, you know, Garrett gets those saves, I think, by virtue of being uh, left-handed as much as anything. That's where the projection comes from. Uh, You know, again, with Matheny willing to play things situationally, uh, you know, Garrett could luck into... uh, you know, two, two out of three lefties, two up in the ninth. And, you know, in terms of acquitting himself and trying to demonstrate worthiness of that kind of role, you know, micro sample size, five innings without a run so far this year, six strikeouts, his velocity looks like it's in line with, uh, you know, where it's been in the past. So, uh, you know, the bugaboo for him has long been uh, control, and it's not great this year. He's walked a couple guys already in those five innings. But the, the swing strikes and the strikeouts are there. So, you know, 10% of the saves is, you know, three and a half or four saves. And what, those are more likely to come not in a binge, but on the random night, like I said, where uh, maybe Barlow pitches the eighth and two out of three guys in the ninth are uh, left-handed and he gets the call. Always interesting to look at closer situations and uh, relief situations. And I think as the years move along and more and more younger more adventuresome people move into front offices. I think the Tampa model is going to become increasingly apparent across baseball, even where the old traditionalists currently hold sway, because it just seems like more and more of them are getting the idea that if it's the eighth inning when the three, four, five hitters are up, that's when I want my best guy in there, which we've been talking about for years, but maybe we shouldn't have been because it just definitely screws up our ability to project saves and to amass them for our fantasy teams. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've been banging on this drum for, you know, quite a long time now, but Hey, quietly in, in, uh, in, in Tampa, Andrew Kittredge has three saves. We've been projecting him for about 50% of share of them. And, uh, you know, it seems like he's sort of on track for that right now. So, uh, you know, they have, you know, I'm not going to call him a lead horse, but a, uh, First, maybe he's a first among equals sort of thing at this point. Yeah, I think even in situations where they are doing that kind of targeting the uh, opposition batting order to get best against best, if you think about it, most of the time the ninth inning isn't going to be uh, a situation where that is, or the eighth inning and ninth inning together are not going to be a situation where that's so obvious. You might be five, six, seven, or 
nine one two or something like that in the eighth. So you do think ahead and say, well, there's no huge advantage. I'll, I'll just wait and see, and we'll we'll use our second best guy to get the eighth inning outs against nine one two or even one two three, and then uh, we'll get four five six with the big guy. There's lots of ways to look at it, and I think that's to the credit of managers who are looking at it in that way that they're using those analytical skills and game playing uh, matchup skills to improve their team's chances of winning, whatever it does for us fantasy players. That's exactly right. The batting order thing seems to be you know, very trendy right now in terms of how things pe- how people approach this. And I, the other thing the Rays do, I think, and I, maybe, maybe it's exacerbated because of the expanded rosters right now, is that they seem like they are very, very reluctant to use their relievers of back-to-back days. They almost have like two fleets of relievers. It's like a, it's like hockey with a line change or, you know, basketball with a, uh, like a first and second unit. Right. Uh, Kittredge, for instance, pitched uh, back-to-back days on April 8th and 9th. And since then, and his five appearances since then, he's had at least two days off actually between every start, every appearance. And I really do think that, you know, some of what the Rays do is with these guys, priming these guys to go max effort for you know 15 or 20 pitches for an inning at a time is they want them doing that you know on a pretty consistent cadence of every second day every third day they they try to avoid the back-to-backs as much as they can and that's one of the reasons why the saves get spread out is you know it's almost impossible to get saves on consecutive nights if you're not pitching on consecutive nights right yes it is and uh, that's something that we talked about last week on uh, baseball hq radio is this idea that optimizing the usage of pitchers based on how often they're throwing, how hard they're throwing. These kind of things are not necessarily good for fantasy baseball, but they're smart. And eventually, maybe we have to change our rules because the disconnect between how we play fantasy and what they do in real baseball is getting a little bit wider in that regard. And it really shouldn't be. We should be looking for ways to keep that relatively narrow so we can maintain the illusion that what we're doing is, you know, kind of sort of similar to what they're doing on the fields in the big leagues. Sure. And then of course there's the third leg to that tripod, which is MLB having to do something to, uh, you know, the teams are op- obviously optimizing within the rules and the structure of the game. And maybe MLB needs to take a look at the rules and the structure of the game with, you know, things like number of pitchers active at any given time, size of staffs, et cetera, and get away a little bit from this. Everyone's optimized to pitch one inning at a time and go max effort. And we need to get back to, you know, uh, you know, maybe getting a little bit of velocity out of the game. Got guys working a little, a little bit more regularly, throwing a few more innings, and try to uh, try to level off the uh, pitcher versus batter matchup a little bit because uh, you know these guys are just shred- they're all just shredding batters right now, right? Yes, they are, and uh, a big part of that, I think, might be the availability of so many extra pitchers because they're abusing the injured list. You know, they'll, yeah. they'll get a guy on the injured list who isn't really injured. There was somebody, I can't remember who, came up on a, on a Major League Radio broadcast where he, he had retired or left Major League Baseball, and he was talking about how often he was on the IL when he wasn't hurt. And, and it's something that everybody seems to be turning a blind eye to. But if you have the other ramification of this is if you have six pitchers in addition to your starter on a night who can all go in and throw an inning each or you know, two hitters towards the end of an inning each or whatever, it slows the game down because it takes time to bring those guys in, warm them up, and you get all kinds of ads added into the uh, to the mix. 
it's not good for pace of play. And I think that's something that if Major League Baseball is serious about pace of play, which they claim to have been, and they have kind of tinkered around the edges, this is something I think they're going to have to look at. Yeah. And you know, you're right about the uh, the Phantom IL things as well. That's been an issue for a number of years. I feel like we've seen that less in the early going. Just this year, just because of the 28 man roster. I was looking at, I think it was the Angels the other day, who have, um, you know, they're obviously using the six man rotation with Otani, and barely anybody on that staff has thrown even 80 pitches in a start. Like they were all averaging like, you know, other than like one really good Otani game, they were all averaging like 78 pitches a start. So that's six pitchers pitching once a week throwing 78 pitches a start like in another era when you were only carrying 10 or 11 pitchers that would have been a huge strain on the staff but when you're carrying 15 or 16 you still got you know nine more relievers who could all come in and finish up the game throwing 15 pitches at a pop and it's not even you know it's it, you, they're not even breaking a sweat to try to distribute the workload within that model so uh, you know maybe maybe we'll see things tighten up a little bit as rosters go down to 26 and pitchers go down to 13 but um you know it, it's a bigger problem than that I think so too. And the interesting thing about that is that it wasn't that long ago, certainly within my time as a fantasy baseball player and writing about the game, where there was a real dividing line in the bullpens between the guys who were actually pretty good and the guys who were, you know, not that good in there to mop up in, in, you know, 10 to two games, not so much anymore. They, they seem to have really figured out how to develop failed starters into really good quality relievers because two pitches is enough if you're only going to throw 20 of them in an inning and and they're both pretty good and you can throw them as hard as you can with as much effort as you can knowing that you only have to pitch, you know, one inning or they've got you on some kind of minimal pitch count. They're creating relievers faster than they can burn them out. Right. And then there's the, the competition for the reliever spots on the major league roster is, you know, so big that there's no, you know, the, the game, like you said, the game can be ten to two in the ninth inning, and your fourteenth pitcher can be on the mound, but he's still snapping off ninety-two mile an hour sliders, and you know, literally pitching for his salary because he's trying to stick stick on the roster for another day and doesn't want to get knocked around. There's no, you know, there's there's no concept ever anymore of you know just throw it over and let this game get over with. Everyone's uh, you know fighting for their careers out there. And given the salaries, it's not a bad idea to fight for uh, as long as you can. Uh, Ray, thanks very much. Uh, do appreciate you filling in for Nick uh, this morning, and we'll talk to you again next week, either doing one or two sessions, depending on how it goes with me trying to find a pinch hitter for Nick. I will be ready. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site and regularly covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio, of course, doing double duty this week. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty from the Bat and Bat X Projection Systems. He'll be coming to the plate for his second appearance next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. That'll be next Friday, another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Steve Gardner of USA Today, as well as the usual great stuff, our National and American League news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. All coming up next Friday on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty from the Bat and Bat X Projection Systems. Derek, welcome back. Yeah, um, this has been fun so far. I'm, uh, I'm having a good time. Good. 
In doing my research for this uh, interview, I happened upon a treasure trove of your old articles in various places. It was on your website, a list from roughly 2009 to 2011 or so. I read a bunch of them and they were very interesting. And it's always fun to read analytical baseball writing that refers to Jamie Moyer and guys like that long gone. But before we talk specifics, what percentage of your theories or findings or principles from those days do you think still apply today as far as you're concerned? Um, so the, the thing about sabermetrics and, you know, just like analytics in general is that we use the best information we have at the time to make the best decisions we can, but we're always looking to learn new things and to challenge our beliefs and, uh, they are going to change over time. So there are certainly things that have held up over time and there are things that we've learned more about, or we've gotten access to just better data and, uh, and so we're able to improve that way. 25% of it still stand, 80% of it still stand. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that you identified, it seems to me, and I read mo- a lot of it, you could still make a pretty good argument for most of it today. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to put a percentage on, but I would certainly say the majority of what we knew back then is still true, is still, uh, at least to some degree, you know, kind of the right way to, to think about things. Yeah, I think you're right. And the, if there's been any difference, it's that it's, it's more precise. The, the theory has become more precise in its application because, as you said, we have better data. The first article I read was titled, Does it pay to play the matchups with starting pitchers? The argument at the time was whether it was effective to micromanage pitcher starts based on strength of opposition. And I think most of us are doing that today, at least some of the time. But I know plenty of fantasy managers... Derek, they like to start their starters and they don't think about matching up because you match up, you leave your guy on the bench, he throws a no hitter, you're mad. (laughs) And it happens often enough that people have it at least as a bias in their minds. You concluded at the time that pitchers perform better against weaker opponents, which makes sense. And that therefore it does make sense to play the matchups in full season leagues. Where are you on that question today? Yeah, I, I think I was, you know, I, I think that's 100% right. I think that's something you should be doing. It's something I probably believe even stronger now, especially because um, over time, you know, I've identified even more things that contribute to a matchup. You know, back then, I'm sure I wasn't considering weather, but weather's huge. Uh, so, yeah, if uh, if you're not playing the matchups, then you're leaving value on the table. And, yeah, there's going to be times where, you bench your guy and because the matchup's bad and he winds up doing great anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. You, you need to try to stay objective about these things and understand that we're dealing with probabilities and that over time, when you continue to make decisions like that, you're going to be right more than you're wrong and it's going to add up to you know a lower ERA for your team or a lower whip for your team or whatever it is. This is the argument about probability that I think a lot of people who play fantasy games, a lot of people who gamble, we were talking about this just before we started the interview, and they don't understand the power of probabilities and they misunderstand the idea of the long run. A key part of your argument in that article, in fact, was that the theory holds over the long run and you acknowledge that in the shorter run, anything can and will happen. And this is something people just have trouble grasping, that long run probability can't be entirely predictive of a particular game or a short run of games. Why not? I mean, I think those people are wrong. Um, 
the you know quote unquote long run probability is is literally all that matters. Um, you know, it, what we're trying to do is maximize our probability of success. Um, so we're, if we think that starting this guy and benching this guy is going to increase our probability of success, that's all that matters. Um, if it doesn't work out that way, well, so what? You know, when we talk about long run versus short run, like all we mean when we say long run is that like in a sample size of one, yeah, anything can happen, but that doesn't mean it's not predictable. It just means that there's more variance in a smaller sample size. And as you increase your sample size, the same math that you're using for that one game, you increase your sample size and you actually see the probability get closer and closer to what you were projecting in the first place, because that's just how the world works. I remember if an interview I heard with a guy who played poker for a living and I don't, it was one of the well-known professionals. I can't remember which one it was. And the, the interviewer asked him to, to explain long run versus short run thinking. And he said, if you have four of a kind in a, in an ordinary poker game, you're going to bet like you're, you have the mortal nuts as they say that you can't lose. But every so often, one time in a million or 200 million or whatever it's going to be, somebody's going to have a straight flush and you're going to lose with four of a kind. Somebody somewhere in the world is going to lose to a straight flush with a four of a kind. He said, but you still have to bet the four of a kind. You can't, you can't bet thinking that the likelihood is that there's even any kind of likelihood that you're going to lose. And that's what probability means. You have to believe that under certain circumstances, knowing what you know, that the cards you're holding or the player you're considering benching or, or playing has a likelihood of, uh, accomplishing whatever it is you're thinking of having them accomplish. And if it's better than 50%, probably it's your best play to, to make that bet. Yeah, that's a great analogy that that's perfectly said. But it raises the question for a lot of people. I imagine how many games is a long run? The bigger the sample, the better, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, like we're still projecting the same thing regardless, you know? Um, so, you know, long run, I guess in, in fantasy baseball is, is a full season. Um, you know, not everything is going to completely stabilize after that point, but you know, the bigger the sample, the better, you know, if you're, if you have that four of a kind, like, yeah, you're going to run into this straight flush, you know, once in a blue moon and uh it doesn't make your decision to play that that four of a kind the same way every single time any worse the time you lose you're still correct to play it that way another thing i think people have trouble grasping is that you know if you're if you play uh, 99,999 hands of poker and so far that hasn't happened to you that it's somehow due that the next time you get four of a kind, you're not going to bet it because this is the hundred thousandth time. And that's the time that it's going to happen. And and people <laughs> don't realize it's just another event in an endless infinite series of events. And you're, you don't know where you are in the run of it. And you still have to play the four of a kind, like it's four of a kind. Yeah, exactly. You don't know when that one bad outcome is going to happen just because you've had a stretch, a long stretch of good outcomes doesn't mean that that bad outcome is any more likely to happen on the next one. It is st the odds are still exactly the same. 
Yeah, or any less likely to happen. It's it, Yeah, it's exactly the same. I remember once I was talking with Matt Beagle here at Baseball HQ Radio about a particular way to play a situation, and he, he made reference to the probabilities. And I said, just to be conversational, but that's only in the long run. We don't know what's going to happen in the short run. He said, yeah, but that's the way you got to bet it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like it's, uh, I mean, it's it's so cut and dry and so many people try to make it into something more complicated than it actually is. Like it's it's not that complicated. Just play the best probability. Just play whatever the most likely thing to happen is. Do that and that's your best move. You mentioned that a season is usually a pretty good proxy for a long run, but there are metrics or, or occurrences that take longer than a season to run. And the other thing I've read about and I believe is true is 162 games makes a season, but we don't necessarily know that the 162 games have to start in April and end in September. They could be, you know, July to July. Yeah. I mean, what does 162 games even mean? Like it's an arbitrary number. It's just the number that gets played this year because that's what major league baseball has, has decided they're going to play. Um, there's nothing special about it. There's nothing that says after those 162 games, you can believe who this guy is exactly based on what he did in those games. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, and, and we should know it doesn't work that way, even though a lot of fantasy players, I don't know, they, they don't act accordingly, but like we see every year, the guy who had a great year last year, well, what does he do this year? He usually gets worse. The guy who was really bad last year, what does he do this year? He usually gets better. Uh, because we're getting a bigger sample size and because the guys who perform at the extremes tend to work back towards the middle. Which is called regression. And uh, that's another thing that I know annoys a lot of people in your field and in fantasy baseball analysis in general is that the term regression is always presented as though it means you're going to get worse. And in fact, you can regret, it's just me moving towards the middle is what you're doing. And if you're below the middle, you'll move up. And if you're above the middle, you move down. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. And I think that in turn might be because of the way baseball media discuss it. When you hear guys in broadcast booths trying to sound like they know what, uh, what's going on with, with stat statistical measures, they'll say, oh, he's bound to regress. And you'd say, well, yeah, but he could regress better if he's up, if he's below the mean, but I don't think they get that. And it's on. Anyway, in a baseball prospectus article you wrote in 2011 about rate stabilization, which we've talked about, you discussed your method, which was a blending of actual denominator events like um, plate appearances minus intentional walks minus hit by pitches to calculate better K rates. And you take that and blend it with mean performance. And the actual performance counts more and more as there's more and more of a sample. And the uh, the mean performance of the league declines in importance or in, in proportion. Can you explain how well that method has aged or is it something that everybody in your field knows? Uh, yeah, it's aged really well. It's still, it's still used. It's still basically the standard for projections. I think just about any projection system is going to have some form of that in there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's been improvements that have been made to it, um, you know, mostly to do with defining, you know, the mean that you're combining the player's actual numbers with, you know, the, you know, kind of the original, you know, standard, you know, the Marcel projection system just said, you know, com combine the player with league average and, and that's your combination. Uh, as the years have gone on, we've learned, um, and it's something the bat has been doing for a long time, 
um, you know, you can get a better sense of what any individual players, uh, you know, kind of, kind of specific mean is, you know, if, uh, if we know that whatever Jacob deGrom throws 98 miles an hour, well, guess what? We're not going to regress him to a league average mean because a league average pitcher throws what 91 miles an hour or whatever. Uh, we know that he throws 98. And so we should be regressing Jacob deGrom to the mean of players who throw 98 miles an hour or that sort of thing. And then there's lots of ways to uh, add complexity beyond that. But uh, I would say that's kind of the biggest improvement that we've seen to this sort of method. But the method itself is is exactly what you should be doing. You're, you're saying, okay, this stat uh, stabilizes at a certain point. And the bigger the sample size we have, the more we can trust what the player has actually done. And the smaller sample size we have, the less we can trust it. And so it's exactly the way that we should do this every single time. Another really interesting baseball prospectus article looked at whether pitchers control their infield fly rates above and beyond the control they already have over fly ball rates in general. I've always been interested in infield fly rates. I used to uh, derive a sneaky advantage, or so I thought, by adding infield flies to strikeouts and calling them strikeouts for for production purposes, because I thought, same outcome, nobody, nobody advances and it's an automatic out. And it actually worked for me for a while. So I was interested in that and you found that while fly ball percentages stabilized fairly quickly, infield fly ball rates, infield flies divided by fly balls, didn't establish themselves as quickly. But by regressing the pitchers to their own fly ball rates instead of league rates, you got better results. How have those results stood the test of time as far as infield fly rates? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say uh, that's probably one that has also stood up. You know, these aren't these aren't studies that are like specific to a certain era or to specific players. You know, we're using a big sample size of lots of years of the exact same game that's still being played. And so the results are still, you know, they're still going to stand up, you know, knowing that pitchers fly ball rate is going to, is going to help us. You know, if we are trying to figure out, you know, how many home runs a guy's going to allow knowing his fly ball rate gives us valuable information. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Derek Hardy from The Bat and The Bat X Projection Systems. And uh, Derek, you're kind of on the leading edge of a lot of fantasy baseball research and, and projection systems. And I'm curious what you think about the value of the added granularity we have in the data that we get. And before we go on, I'm very curious to ask first, how have you been using and applying the relatively new information we get about umpires? Uh, so which information are we talking about exactly here with umpires? Who's good at calling balls and strikes and who's not? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the bat has always accounted for uh, for umpires. I'm not sure we've really uh, gotten any like advances with umpire data in the last few years. Um, but yeah, accounting for umpires is really important. Knowing who calls balls and strikes well, knowing who's going to boost your pitcher's strikeout rate is... Uh, you know, is, is really valuable information, you know, especially when you're playing the matchups. Where do you think the next frontiers are in baseball research, especially for fantasy baseball purposes? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things The anytime we get new data, that becomes a new frontier to figure out, okay, well, how valuable is this data? Um, you know, we're starting to see it a little bit more, but uh, analyzing pitcher stuff is super important. And, you know, in general, we're still super behind on. So uh, 
you know, that that's really good. I think uh, we're really, really bad at analyzing player injuries. And so uh, if we were to ever to get more robust data in regards to that, I think there's a lot of advances that could be made. There's, you know, and then any sort of new, you know, player tracking technology. You talked earlier about getting, uh, you know, player bat speeds. Like we don't have that, but as soon as we do, like that's, that's something we're going to want to look into. So there's, there's lots of things coming down the pipe, I think. I think it's well known that there are stat case, stat cast data that are being uh, accumulated and distributed to the teams, but not to the public. Do you know how much of that is not being shown and what kinds of data were not being shown? Um, I don't know all the specifics. Uh, I do know there's lots of it that is being gathered and not made available. Um, I don't know how much I'm allowed to even talk about, but like, you know, bat speed is obviously one that, um, you know, I, I think is going to be, I would hope, you know, publicly available in the next few years. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier, there are some, um, you know, there are some tracking systems now that can track, um, you know, player mechanics, you know, how the player moves, you know, his exact batting stance and how he moves through a swing and like, you know, pitcher mechanics and all that sort of stuff. And uh, that stuff would be really interesting uh, as that becomes available. Without divulging anything that you're not allowed to, do you pay for the kind of data that we can't get for free? Um, I pay for certain data, but there's a lot of it that you just really can't get access to. And, uh, you know, unless you have like a lot of money, I guess, um, you know, most of, most of it is reserved for major league teams. Um, and, uh, so yeah. <laughs> they don't have any money. Just ask them. <laughs> so you're kind of in the middle ground between people in the general public and the, and the guys who are running teams. You do have some data that we don't have, but they've got more than you've got. Um, yeah, I'd say I, I'm much closer to the, the public side. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have one type of data that you don't currently have, maybe it doesn't even exist yet, but what would you like to know? I mean, like what would be really cool to know is, uh, and I, again, I don't even know how you'd quantify it. So first you'd have to come up with like how you're going to do it, but like a direct feed into every player's brain, because you have so many people talk about, well, this guy is, you know, in a slump right now and his confidence is shot or like whatever. And like, nobody actually knows this. Like you're not inside this guy's head. Like, why are you pretending to know? what this guy's feeling right now or thinking about or whatever. Um, and if there was ever a way to know that and to figure out how that matters and whatever, that would be really, really cool. <laughs> Your projection system does use a lot of advanced analytics like StatCast data, especially the BADX system. How much did your accuracy improve by incorporating that more granular StatCast data into your projections? Yeah, it definitely improved. You know, we're on, uh, you know, it's been around for two years now and, you know, the, the, the results at the end of each year have shown that it's, it's been better than the bat. You know, a lot of the accuracy tests that have been done at various places, you know, have kind of shown that the bat X, um, you know, is the most accurate projection system that's, that's available publicly anywhere, uh, which is really cool. And I think it validates, you know, the, the addition of the stack cast data. 
there were a couple of outcomes. I, I checked the two systems side by side for the rest of this season. And just for one example, the Bat X has Nolan Arenado hitting six fewer home runs the rest of the season compared with the projection in the Bat. And I've got to say that it's quite an outlier. Most of them are within like zero difference or one home run difference, that kind of thing. But what do you think the Bat X doesn't like about Nolan Arenado that the Bat does? Yeah, he's definitely one of the the biggest uh, discrepancies. I think before the season, I don't know if it's still true, um, but before the season, the bat, without StatCast data, was the high man on Arenado. And the bat X, including StatCast data, was the low man on him. Like To see a gap that big is uh, is pretty crazy. And what it comes down to, really, is that his StatCast data has been really bad and in decline for years. It started to bounce back a little bit this year, but we're still kind of dealing with small sample sizes. Um, so it's possible that, you know, he's kind of changed something. I know people said, you know, his last year in Colorado, like he was, uh, you know, he was hurt and like whatever. But this is a guy who had gone from, you know, in the, you know, the mid 2000s around, you know, like 2015, 2016, when we first started getting this data, you know, you look at like his barrel rate, it was, 78th percentile in 2015, 75th percentile in 2016, and it just dropped every single year. In 2020, it was down to the 34th percentile. In 2021, it only bounced back to the 42nd. Like a lot of his metrics were below average, um, and only some of them have bounced back this year. Like his bow rate is up to 66th percentile, which is at least above average now. But his exit velocity is 51st percentile. His exit velocity on fly balls is 39th percentile. That's the lowest of his career. So, like, there are still a lot of things with him that are big red flags. And, of course, he's not playing in course field anymore. Yeah, that's a difference for sure. Uh, do you use average exit velocity or max exit velocity or both for hitters? So the bad X uses... Um, basically it, it looks at lots of different variations on exit velocity and launch angle, and it kind of finds which ones are the most predictive. So it doesn't just use one, it uses like a few different ones, but like some of the ways that it will look at exit velocity, it'll look at average exit velocity, but that definitely is overrated by the public. You know, max exit velocity is valuable. Exit velocity on the top 5% of a hitter's balls is valuable exit velocity on, you know, fly balls is important. You know, what percentage of balls is he hitting at certain mile per hour thresholds? Like what percentage of his balls is he hitting over a hundred miles an hour or over 95 miles an hour or something like that? Um, and the same thing with launch angle, you know, average launch angle, like, okay, but what percentage of his, of his balls is he hitting between, you know, this and this degree that tends to correlate to a higher home run rate or a higher Babbitt or like whatever it would be. And so, um, it's not as simple as just like average exit velocity or average launch angle, the way a lot of people kind of make it out to be. I've always thought average launch angle in particular was just ridiculous to, to consider. I mean, it, it goes for most players to from below zero to, you know, 90 for, for a perfect pop-up at home plate. I don't know. I know that there's averaging in the middle of the distribution, but it still seems uh, ludicrous to me that you, that you'd want that information. I'd way rather, rather know what percentage of balls that he hits are, as you said, are in that sweet spot, which I guess is captured pretty nicely by barrels. Although there's a velocity element to that as well. The last time we talked, uh, Derek, you said you were working on updating the bat 
picture projections to include more of the kind of data that the BADX has from the advanced analytics. How's that project going? Uh, it's coming along, not as quickly as I would like, but it's still it's still definitely going to happen. Hopefully, you know, by the end of this year or or by the you know the start of next year for sure. I hope so. It's a I, I love the bat. I love the bat X. I like looking at projections. I'm a baseball nerd. I, I accept that uh, on as an honorific rather than as a pejorative. So uh, keep it keep doing it because what you're doing is really working well. Uh, Patrick Davitt here on Baseball HQ Radio with Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X. And uh, as you know, Derek, I like to wrap up these discussions by talking about some boons and banes. And boy, are you a guy in position to choose boons and banes? Let's start with your boons, Derek. These are players who look like good value. Let's start in the American League. Who's a batter who could be a boon? Uh, that's going to be Joey Gallo for me. We're starting to see him uh, turn it on a little bit, but uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people this year tell me how bad Joey Gallo is. Um, Yankees fans telling me that they need to just like cut him or release him, and it's just like the silliest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, he's a guy who strikes out a lot and hits a lot of home runs. Like we know that this is who Joey Gallo is. Guys like that are going to be streaky by nature. Um, you know, the past couple of days, he's finally hit a couple home runs, but this shouldn't be a surprise. He's the same guy he's always been. His power is there. All of his staff cast numbers are, are there, you know, his barrel percentage is 98th percentile is, you know, max exit velocity is 93rd. His exit velocity on fly balls is a hundredth percentile. Like it's the same guy. He's got big power. He's going to be a little streaky. He plays for a great offense in a great park. Um, and, uh, and I think in general, I mean, even in, in preseason drafts, people were down on him because of the batting average or whatever. So just if, if you can ignore that, you're going to get a guy who's a strong value. You know, a, a few years ago at BaseballHQ.com, I got into a discussion with uh, somebody who shall remain nameless. And we were talking about this whole idea of streaks and, and that kind of stuff. And I decided to do a little research project. And there was a player, I don't remember who it was now. It was like Joey Gallo, though, and had started the year on a real down period. And then finally came out of it as you'd expect and was streaky for the whole year. And, and I thought, well, let's look at some other period of 12 games or whatever it is, and just do a rolling average of 12 game periods for this guy. And guess what? They were, it wasn't cyclical of course, but there were 12 game periods where he had bad numbers and 12 game periods where he had great numbers. And most of the time it was somewhere in between. I think what draws attention is it just happens to be the 12 game period at the start of the season. And that's what get everybody uh, up and excited. If he'd hit three home runs on day one and then had the same exact streak, nobody would have thought anything of it. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. People, uh, you know, people have their biases and it's very easy to just look at, oh, well, he's done this so far this year, and but it's only been two weeks. Like if he did the same streak in July, no one would care. They might not even notice, in fact. Uh, in the National yeah. League, who's a batter who could be a boon? Uh, that's going to be Tommy Pham for me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Tommy Pham. I think the skills are really good. I think the stack cast numbers have been there, um, you know, consistently for the last few years, the bad X really likes him and he's playing in the best park he's ever played in, in his entire career. He's been in pitchers parks his entire career. And now he's in the best park in baseball for home runs. Uh, he's already hit three of them so far this year. And it's not even like the summer months where we really see the balls flying there. Uh, he's got a low BABIP, but that's going to turn around. I think Tommy Pham is, is a huge, huge buying opportunity. 
Might get you a couple of bags too, and there's nothing wrong with that in this uh, environment. Uh, over to the mound we go. How about an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Joe Ryan for me. He was a guy that the bat was really big on relative to the market coming into the year, and I haven't seen anything to change that opinion. The bat is still the high man on him. Um, he's had you know a really good start to this year. The peripherals are good. The stuff looks pretty good. Um, I, I really like Joe Ryan. I have Joe Ryan on my TGFBI team, and yes, I really like Joe Ryan too. And I tried to get him in some of my other leagues and got sniped in the draft or outbid or whatever the case might be. Joe Ryan, I think, is the real deal. How about a National League pitcher who's a boon? Uh, Carlos Rodon, uh, another guy that I was huge on coming into the year. The Bad X really loved him relative to, um, you know, relative to ADP, and he's just been nothing short of fantastic so far. The bat thinks that there's not a single pitcher in baseball on a perning basis that's better than Carlos Rodon, except for Jacob DeGrom. That's it. Not Corbin Burns, not Matt Scherzer, like nobody. Rodon's the best guy, the most strikeouts, FDRA. He's just just insanely good. The numbers have been really good since the start of last year, and he's made so many changes that the bat is believing them. Like, he's throwing this year – 96 and a half miles an hour two years ago he was throwing 92 miles an hour like it's he's just made so many gains with velocity with spin rate with uh you know the health is i guess the main thing that scares people off and you know if he gets hurt i'm going to be very sad but uh while he's healthy he is elite isn't even the right word like he is beyond elite you mentioned the health problems but I was curious when you mentioned the fact that he's made all these improvements in spin rate and so forth, which are quite tightly linked, I think, with the pitcher mechanics. And San Francisco has proved really adept at getting the most out of pitchers like Rodon, guys who've been in the league for a while and they kind of bring them in and tune them up. It's like an old Corvette, you know, it comes in and it might need a little bit of a upgrade and uh, clean out the clean out the engine and stuff. Do you account in your projection systems for team contexts in a situation where it's extraordinary, like what San Francisco is doing? No, just because you really can't quantify it. You know, once the season starts, we start getting some data. Um, you know, it can get folded in, you, you know, but, uh, you know, like it's a narrative that San Francisco has this great coaching, but like there's no way to quantify it. Unfortunately, could you quantify it by comparing how he was doing in what uh, in Chicago, given the park if, and and so forth, or a guy like Gosman who was pitching in Baltimore and moved to San Francisco, over and above the park effects, they seem to they just seem to be doing something right. And I know it's a narrative, but it seems like it's not a narrative that we're just making up to explain things. It's it seems like it has some validity. I, I and I'm right. I, I I agree with you that you're right that uh, it's really hard to quantify and put your finger on it. Uh, let's go over to the Baines. These are players you think are re- going to represent bad value over the rest of the season, bit overpriced, maybe sell high candidates. Back to the American League. Who's a batter who could be a Bane? Uh, I'm going to say Ty France. Um, I know he's a guy that's like gotten hype in certain circles, you know, coming into last year, coming into this year. And this year he's been really, really good. Uh the bat and and the bat X in particular are really not buying into him. Like it doesn't really like his stat cast stuff. It thinks he's really playing over his head. And especially with his hot start to this year, uh, he's a guy I'd certainly be looking to sell high on if I can. In the national league, who's a batter who could be a Bane? 
Uh, Jerickson Profar, uh, another guy who's just off to a really hot start, and he kind of has the narrative working in his favor that, like, well, he was a top prospect for so long. Um, you know, maybe now he's just finally making good on that promise and breaking out. But he's just been so mediocre for so long. And again, we're what two and a half weeks into the year, three weeks into the year, that uh, I'm not willing to buy that right now. If I can get anything for him, I would trade him. Back to the mound we go in the American League. Who's a pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, Paul Blackburn, just another guy that is, uh, you know, really seems to be overperforming right now. You know, one three five ERA, and the peripherals are good. Uh, but I'm really not buying them. Like this is not a guy who's been a high strikeout pitcher in the past. Like he doesn't throw especially hard. Um, you know, I think the walks are going to come back up. I'm just, I'm just not a big Blackburn guy. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who's a Bane? Walker Bueller. Ooh. I, I'm just not a big Walker Bueller fan. I don't think really any projection system is. This is a guy who has been beating his peripherals for the last four years or so. And a lot of people are like, well, he's done it for four years, so this is probably who he is. But we talked earlier about stabilization rates and whatnot, and uh, we're nowhere near that point for Walker Bueller. Like, he's had a really, really low batting average on balls in play for the last four years, and it's continued so far this year. But we're nowhere near the point where that should stabilize. And so, you know, absent other information – we need to assume that's going to regress. That's going to come back up. And when it does, that's going to spell trouble for him, especially because he's not a guy. He has good stuff, but he's not a guy who really strikes a lot of batters out. Like last year, he barely struck out a batter per inning. This year, he's striking out 7.6 batters per nine. Like that's not a good number. That's a, that's a, bad number for a guy that people treat as like one of the absolute best pitchers in baseball. And I'm not saying Bueller's bad by any means, you know, uh, on a per inning basis, he's probably like a top 15 or 20 pitcher in baseball, but people treat him like he's top three or four or something crazy. So if you can trade him for any other legitimate ace, Max Scherzer, Carlos Rodon, uh, like whoever you want, whoever's a real ace, trade him. You said that four years uh, still wasn't enough to say that the rate had stabilized. Uh, How long does it take for that uh, pitcher Babbitt to stabilize? Pitcher Babbitt takes uh, roughly 10, the equivalent of 10 years worth of data. That's not to say you have to wait 10 years for it to happen because at that point guys have changed and whatnot. But when we're, you know, doing that calculation that we talked about before, where you're taking part of what the player has done and part of some, uh, like mean or average, um, you're basing that calculation on 10 years worth of data to stabilize. So for him, if he's had four years worth of data and uh, at 10 years worth, that's where we say it's stable. And when it's stable, that means that we can believe half of what the player's done and half of that league average. Um, we're not even at that point where it's half and half. You know, we're about halfway to that. So right now, if we were to project Walker Bueller's Babbitt, we would take about a quarter of what he's done and 75% of some, you know, player specific mean. And that would be our Babbitt projection. And if you look at fan graphs, you look at the projections uh, from any of the systems, that's about what you see. Uh, the bat is projecting a 283 Babbitt and he's had a 261 career Babbitt. Uh, Steamer is a little more pessimistic. They have him with a 294 Babbitt and an ERA over four. Um, like there are red flags here and yeah, maybe he's an outlier, 
but that's not a chance I want to take. Like people are not treating him like, oh yeah, like he's, you know, doing some things and maybe, uh, maybe he's going to keep doing them. Like, no, they're treating him like this is exactly who he is. And we don't know that this is exactly who he is. So trade him for a guy who we do know who they are. Trade him for Max Scherzer. Trade him for, you know, anyone that, that we know who they are. Cause we don't know who Walker Buehler is. Just before we go on, uh, Derek, you mentioned uh, pitchers stuff earlier. I think you were talking about Carlos Rodon and we uh, briefly talked about Eno Saris as well. And Eno, of course, has these uh, pitching metrics called Command Plus and Stuff Plus. Are you looking at those kind of metrics with an eye towards possibly including them in some of your projections work? Or do you already have something like that or that those metrics themselves incorporated? Yeah, so I think Eno Eno's done some great work with that stuff. Um, I've been developing my own version of that for many years now that that's part of basically what the bad X for pitchers is going to be. We kind of talked about it earlier. Um, it's going to be my version of that essentially. Um, and there are some really cool things that are being incorporated into mine, but it's, uh, it's not ready yet. Derek Cardi's Boons, Joey Gallo of the Yankees, Tommy Pham of Cincinnati, Joe Ryan of Minnesota, Carlos Rodon of the Giants, his Baines, Ty France of Seattle, Jerks and Profar of San Diego, Paul Blackburn in Oakland and Walker Bueller in LA. Geez, Derek, this has been great. Uh, tell our listeners how they can keep up with Derek Cardi and all your good work. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Derek Cardi. Uh, you can find the bat projection system for uh, season long at Fangraphs, for daily fantasy at Roto Grinders, and for sports betting at EV Analytics. And uh, for people who don't know how to spell your name, it's D E R E K C A R T Y all together in that uh, Twitter handle. Geez. Uh, this has been terrific, Derek. I always look forward to talking with you. I learn a lot. I have a lot of fun. Uh, I like to have the discussions. It's just been fantastic. I hope we get to do this again sometime later this year. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me on. Derek Carty is the creator of the Bat and Bat X projection systems. We'll take a quick break here, and then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The object of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. That George Carlin bit that I just played uh, came to my mind while Derek and I were talking about football versus baseball. I thought you might get a laugh out of that. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Toronto second baseman Samad Taylor is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. 
He's an elite athlete with plus speed who can play most positions on the diamond, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Wow, that's a pretty good combination. Elite athlete plus speed who can play almost anywhere. But wait, it gets even better. At 23 years old, Toronto Blue Jays second baseman, Saban Taylor, is between 22 and 27 years old, obviously. See where we're going with this? Not counting 2022, Taylor has five seasons of professional experience. And although he is yet to make his Major League debut, Taylor did average 20-plus steals his previous three seasons, stealing 44, 26, and 30 bases from 2018 to 2021, respectively. In other words, Taylor appears to fit Baseball HQ's stolen base breakout profile, which identifies speedy players capable of stealing 30-plus bases in the majors. Even so, Taylor has only played 19 games at AAA thus far. That's why 23-year-old Toronto Blue Jays second baseman, Saban Taylor, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Once again, Taylor appears to fit our stolen base breakout profile for finding breakthrough players capable of stealing 30-plus bases. And remember, Taylor did steal 30 bases at double-A in 2021. But, as the saying goes, you can't steal first base, right? Luckily, Taylor posted an on-base percentage of 385 at double-A last season, powered by a walk rate of 12%. Hence, Taylor's 385 OBP in 2021 and his career 346 OBP in the minors exceeds our target 340 on-base percentage or OBP benchmark at BaseballHQ.com. Likewise, Taylor's 12% walk rate powering his 385 OBP in 2021 also exceeds our 10% walk rate benchmark at BaseballHQ.com for identifying baseball's most patient hitters. Did we also mention that Taylor belted 16 home runs last season, accompanied by a 273 batting average? So to recap, Taylor is an elite athlete with plus speed. He's already stolen 11 bases at AAA in 19 games this year, capable of playing everywhere. He can hit for power, 16 home runs in 2021, three home runs already in 2022, and he can hit for a respectable average. 294 in 2021 and currently 273 in 2022. Thus, that speed, power, and average all in one package for 23-year-old Toronto Blue Jays second baseman, Saban Taylor is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about checking out the no-doubter home run leaderboards. Earlier in the show, Derek Carty and I were talking about the possible reasons for the home run power outage we've seen in Major League Baseball this young season. It's been widely reported in the baseball media. Nonetheless, it's actually true. I prorated the number of home runs in each of the last five seasons to a standard number of plate appearances, namely the 186,517 plate appearances in 2019. That was the year of the happy fun ball. The baseline for home runs that year was 6,776 taters. Then I worked my way forward prorating to 2019. We've had 6,462 home runs prorated in 2020, a 5% decline from 2019. 
A 6,098 home runs in 2021 prorated, a 10% decline from 2019. And this year, 4,416 home runs, on pace for a 35% decline from just a few years ago. If we prorate all of baseball history to that same number of plate appearances, the 4,416 home runs this year would be the lowest since 1986. So it's real. Derek and I agreed that the likely culprit was the ball, either directly in the manufacturing or via the standard-issue humidors that have been issued to all the teams by Major League Baseball and whose use has been made mandatory. It's probably some combination of the two. You'll recall I mentioned that there might be some way to take advantage of this situation. So what I did was I checked the StatCast data on the Baseball Savant page for home run distances. That StatCast page shows all the fly balls that have been hit far enough to have been home runs in at least one stadium. They classify the fly balls as no doubters, which would be out at all 30 stadiums, mostly gone, which would have been out of 8 to 29 of the stadiums, and doubters, They'll be out at seven stadiums or fewer. Importantly, they also tell us what percentage of each player's actual home runs were no-doubters. My thinking on this was, if there are hitters whose home runs are mostly no-doubters, they're less likely to lose home runs to the 2022 mush ball or marshmallow ball, the sad glum ball, whatever we're going to call it. So I looked up those numbers for both 2021 and 2022. And as a public service to you, the loyal listener of Baseball HQ Radio, here's what I found. I limited the study to 2021 hitters who had at least 25 jacks, mostly in the interest of saving time. For all such hitters, no doubters made up almost exactly 50% of the home runs. 50% was also the median of the range from 24% no doubters at the bottom to 80% no doubters at the top. Four batters in 2021 had fewer than 30% no doubter taters. Alice Garcia had 29%, Chris Bryant 27%, Nick Castellanos 27%, and Kyle Tucker at just 24%. Looking at Kyle Tucker, I'm just saying. The five top guys who were all above two-thirds, no doubters, were Pete Alonso, Eduardo Escobar, Josh Donaldson, CJ Crone, and, well, let's just say a certain member of the Boston Red Sox. I'll leave it with you for now to think over, and I'll tell you his name at the end. So let's move forward to 2022. 67 hitters who have three or more home runs. The percentage of no-doubters? Down to 40%. A median of 33%. Part of that is the result of having so few home runs hit, but it's still a decline. We have 11 hitters with literally zero no-doubt home runs. Jose Ramirez, George Springer, Taylor Ward, Cody Bellinger, Pete Alonso. Eugenio Suarez, Bryce Harper, Daniel Vogelback, Brandon Nimmo, Manny Machado, and Chad Pinder. Our home run leader, Anthony Rizzo, has eight home runs, only one of which was a no-doubter. Give him 13%. And Castellanos and Adolis Garcia, again in the lower half, at 33% no-doubters for both. At the top end in 2022, three hitters have three home runs each, and they all had 100% no-doubters. Oscar Mercado, Juan Soto, and Brandon Lau. In the 80% range, a return appearance for C.J. Crone, six no-doubters out of his seven home runs, Austin Riley and Vladito Guerrero rounding out those three. What does all this tell us? Really, I don't know. It's almost surely too early for the 2022 data to tell us too much, 
but I plan to keep an eye on this, and I'll report back later in the year if it seems to be coming to anything. Meanwhile, I can tell you I have Chad Pinder on a roster, and I'll be listening to trade offers if he should smack a couple more barely-gone home runs in the next week or two. Oh, that Boston player who led 2021's no-doubter parade? Did you guess Xander Bogarts? Nope. How about Bobby Dahlbeck? He hits him a mile, right? Uh Uh-uh. Step on up here to the top of the podium, Kike Hernandez. 25 home runs last year, 20 of them no-doubters for a gaudy 80% no-doubter rate. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Derek Carty from the Bat and Batx Projection Systems. Derek is a very successful fantasy player, as you heard, and of course a top-notch analyst and writer. And one of the reasons I like doing this show is because I get to talk to a lot of guys like Derek, people who really know what they're talking about and can explain it so well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Ray Murphy. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And of course, I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you, why don't you leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating? It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. And if your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing to bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Steve Gardner of USA Today, as well as the usual National and American League news analyses and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Steve Gardner of USA Today next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.